What's going on guys? Adam Comer here, host of the DBC Pod with a quick cold open just to give a quick message. Because of the fact that this episode of the pod is going to be a bit of a different type of structure with my old buddy Ray Holloman guesting on the I am uh, first I actually recorded a, a longer cold open which ended up too long. Nobody wants like a whole thing before. So I will say I am writing in uh, the description of the pod. I'm, I'm going to write a couple things just in terms of explaining how the structure is a bit different, along with a couple other things I wasn't able to add into the pod, which uh, I do want to explain. The only thing I'll say uh, for now is Joey Baker. I think I mentioned that he had played uh, in 18 lineups. I was actually meaning to say his 18 most played lineups out of his overall. So he's played more than 18. That's obviously also with uh, garbage time filtered out. He's played 42 total. Georgia State through Wofford and 35 filtering out garbage time. So I was just talking strictly about the 18 most played with garbage time filtered out in that aspect. Nothing more. Okay, so I hope everyone enjoys uh, the holiday season doing or not doing whatever makes you happy. Hopefully you'll get another ep in a week with Ray and I giving thoughts on the 2010s decade. If there's anything you'd like included, email DukeBasketballCorner at Gmail. Co-host inquiries, email DukeBasketballCorner at Gmail. And uh, keep in mind, I put a ton of time in to make this pod the best option anywhere for Duke analysis. That includes every platform in existence, both paid and unpaid. All I've ever asked for is just a bit of promo. Writing a review takes 30 seconds at most. Retweeting a pod that I post on Twitter or writing your own uh, promoting the pod takes 30 seconds at most. So uh, if you're willing, I would appreciate it. If not, it is what it is, and I appreciate everyone who does whatever they can. Thanks so much, and enjoy the episode. Welcome, everybody, to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. As usual, I am your host, Adam Comero, and like peaches and herb, I am reunited with Ray Hollywood Holloman, and it feels so good. If anyone doesn't know Ray, he went to Duke, used to write for the Chronicle, wrote for the old... uh, Fan House, if ever, if anyone remembers that, kind of, it was in the early days of the uh, blogosphere, but it was very legit, and a lot of sites that everyone kind of reads now, it's uh, many of those people who write the articles came, came from uh, Fan House, so it was uh, kind of a, I don't want to say inventor, but uh, along with, it, was, it was a startup of sorts, so uh Ray has a long history in his. Uh, right now, Ray just kind of magically appears like a magician to uh, tweet, live tweet games on Twitter and then disappears again, never to be seen until the next game. So I appreciate being able to uh, grab you, Ray, and have you on a pod because uh, we used to do a lot of them, but you were so selfish and chose family and your job over Duke basketball podcasts. I've decided to forgive you. Appreciate you joining me today. And let me just start off with a double question for you. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, first, since you did listen, um, I, I got you to listen to the last episode I did, the last Duke Basketball Corner. I will say I uh, I, I advertised my uh, made-up podcast, the Cook, Bacon, Booze podcast, with uh, mm-hmm. Quinn Cook, uh, Joey Baker, and Carlos Boozer with uh, 
occasional guest or special guest, uh, Emil Jefferson, to make a meal of it. And I'm sure everyone will automatically add uh, Seth Curry because anytime food is mentioned in basketball, somebody always has to add Curry in there. So would you be a constant listener to that? Oh, that is question number one. And number two, your birthday actually falls on New Year's Eve. The last time Duke played a game on New Year's Eve was when they got stomped by Virginia Tech. On, and it was, I think, uh, 2016. Grayson Allen was actually suspended for that game. And am I allowed to put at least 99.3% of the blame on you if Duke loses? Uh, at uh, Where are they at? Boston College for, uh, for New Year's Eve this season? Well, to answer your first question, if you're writing the jokes for that podcast, I may be tuning somewhere else during that time. Um, and uh, for your second question, yeah, so my birthday has been a bit of a challenge. We also uh, got Johnny Manziel on my birthday, you know, the big Texas uh, uh, Texas uh, uh, comeback um, uh, in, uh, when Duke was, uh, you oh. know, uh, a newbie to returning to bowl games and a uh, very crushing defeat. So there's uh, – there's there's a long history of uh, people disappointing me on my on my birthday, uh, and I think actually going back to somewhere around my birthday, back in uh, 2001 when Duke lost to Stanford out there, that was like December 30th or December 31st, you know, in a game that um, I was a senior in college at the time, couldn't watch because it wasn't televised, uh, you know, that was like the proto ACC network, it wasn't televised, um, so uh, uh, so yeah, it's it's been a little bit of a challenge, so. Um, but, uh, but uh, yeah, I will. Uh, I, I don't know that I can take any of the blame, though. I think, uh, I think if they listen to me, uh, it would be, uh, you know, it would be it would be a happier time. I always have a good time on my birthday, so. Um, it's not your choice. The blame will be forced on you, whether you like it or not. And the Cook Bacon Booze podcast was not a joke. I cannot be more serious. And how dare you? Yeah. I was going to say, uh, coming into this, by the way, we're doing, uh, it's, you know, you talk about having family and everything, and we're getting ready for Christmas around here. We also celebrate Hanukkah in our house. And I always say, you know, Santa helps out, but with Hanukkah, it's a lot more to do. So <laughs> if you want to use that one on your uh, on your podcast, that's, uh, I'll let you do that one. Just uh, Adam Sandler and LeBron, I'm still waiting for the collabro, uh, collabo yeah. for a LeBronica. Yeah, I think everyone would uh, be all in on that one. I would raise my gin and tonic into that. There you go. All right. Um, so I'm hoping, I mean, the plan is for next uh, next weekend, Ray and I, we're going to do kind of a, uh, we're going to break down some of our thoughts on the decade. Or right now, we are going to focus on the current team. And I did say the last episode I was going to do this deep dive for, with Ray, because um, everyone I think who listens knows that, I have plenty of time on the typical episodes to kind of go deep into everything. With Ray, I'd much rather just have a conversation, so it's not going to go too deep into all the categories. It's just going to be to talk some Duke hoops um, to kind of, hey, entertain everyone else, but also just entertain myself because uh, Ray, I've, I mentioned plenty of times when we did these more consistently, he's the closest I've come in my, uh, in my experience to someone who does think the game like I do, which I appreciate, so... More back and forth, the better. Um, having said that, my general thoughts, which I've made clear over and over, are actually, you know, uh, hmm, should we should we go over Wofford before, before we go over the uh, general thoughts? Um, sure. Yeah, might, might as well just do a quick uh, Wofford overview, I guess. Uh, and 
Yeah, this, this gets to a question for you immediately in terms of when you were at Duke. Because from, what I, from my perspective, I thought the fill-in crazies were great. Because most of the students are on break right now. And, so, and honestly, in the past couple years, uh, outside of UNC and the other biggest games, the crazies have been at times maybe possibly understating the, uh, that considering the insane talent at Duke. Um, during the last 10 years, a little bit underwhelming. And the reason, or what I'd assume, perhaps incorrectly, is along with the watching at home experience drastically improving during the decade, students really, they just don't have as much time to kind of bond with each player and grow attached to them with the uh, more of the turnover, I would say. So uh, and I will also add the specifically designed chance against each opponent, at least from my perspective, were have been many times more embarrassing for Duke students, I would say, to yell than it is for opponents to hear. They've, they've become a, yeah. a little bit cheesy. And, but last year, I would say Zion had a huge part in bringing back just the complete insanity of every game. And I think it's actually carried over into this season with a team that can use every advantage possible. So how do you feel about that? And when you were at Duke, I actually, it's kind of unfair to ask you how this time was if you were on break. But what, for, what was your perspective on how the how the period was when a lot of Duke students were on break and how the games went during that? So I'm glad you've noticed that everything has gone downhill since 2001. <laughs> um, and I think that in terms of the crowd, I mean, look, so it's interesting when I was there, you know, they would say the same thing. Oh, you guys aren't as, as, as good or whatever. But we did actually fill up the uh, arena. You know, it's sad. Now you watch uh, you watch it, Cameron. Um, which I just called arena, like uh, uh, Grand Hill's mother, uh, the Cameron Indoor Arena, uh, Cameron Indoor Stadium. So the at the ends of the student section on the TV side. So the the camera in Cameron um, that's broadcasting the wide shot is always you know up in the crow's nest, um, and it's pointing over to where press row is, um, not where the scorers table is, the opposite side. So that's the TV side. So when you look at either end of that, those are the last places to fill in. And when you look at it now, I mean, there's so many games where there's gaps there, and I believe. Um, and I didn't research this, but I believe it's true, is they started giving some of those students to the grad. The grad students sit on the end behind the uh, the uh, the basket that's, if you're looking at the TV screen, uh, on the left. Um, so those are the grad students. They have a different way of getting tickets. They camp out once in October, and then they get tickets for the entire season, whereas undergrads, it's a game-by-game basis. Um, so I believe they started giving some of those tickets away. But, yeah, it's 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 unfortunate that uh, it's not there. And I guess some of it is it's you can now watch uh, uh, at home and it's almost uh, as good of an experience, you know, as it is uh, being there, I guess, at least visually, you know, you're not looking at a, at a, at a, at a 21 inch, you know, uh, old CRT uh, TV or something like that, you know, tube television. Um, you know, you're not listening on the Marconi like we did in my days and waiting for the wireless updates on uh, uh, Art Heyman's latest bucket. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I guess that's part of it, but, uh, I don't know, you know, I don't, but the thing I don't think it is, is about the attachment. I mean, I don't think it, it that whole storyline, like, I know people say that, but like it, I mean, I'm not going to lunch with these guys. Like, you know, I'm there for the team and it's great when they, you know, uh, go through the system and you sort of get to know them in the way that, you know, Shane Battier goes from the freshman off the bench and he's got his cheering checks and the, you know, who's your baddie, uh, daddy Battier who is. Uh, by the way, a guy in my dorm, Gilbert Adams, uh, freshman year is the guy behind Wayne's world and that whole thing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's cool when that happens, but it's still, you know, I, I don't know. I think we get a little too caught up in that, that there's, that there's something that's like vitally lost, 
um, because we don't get to see Zion. What's vitally lost, we don't get to see the best players for four years like we used to. I don't know as much about the relationship side of it, but it definitely has slipped off. And then the second point, I'm going to ramble here, but um, when you talk about the cheers, that actually started when I was an undergrad. We could do an entire podcast on a line monitor uh, who is known as Ty Guy. And uh, the cheer sheets that came out, and they started passing them out. That probably started in about 2000, maybe 2001, although I think it was 2000. Um, and uh, back then there was a lot of, hey, this is nice, drop it on the ground like you didn't pay attention. You know, it just there's something that felt wrong about the scriptedness of it. I don't know. It's just, there's something about camera. It's just a spontaneous, you know, event. Like when, uh, you know, uh, Kenny Inge was um, – you know, never the nicest ACC player, and he got knocked down, and he was hurt for a little bit, and uh, it wasn't bad, though, right? And then we started the, oh, my God, you killed Kenny, and, you know, when Lehigh, back before Lehigh was known as the team that knocked off Duke um, in this great upset, even though the best player on the floor played for Lehigh, um, you know, they, they came to uh, Duke in their brown uniforms, and the, the crazies chanted UPS at them. You know, it was it was like a, you know, it was it was just more of a, an off the cuff kind of thing. So, um, yeah, they, they took it a little too far in my opinion with the J.R. Reed thing, but that's another story. Uh, well, uh, it was a different time. If you think that's too far, look into Herman Veal and some of the things that happened, you know, in the years before, but you know, it's all about the, well, I don't say it's all about that's, I don't want to excuse things, but you know, there's a certain level of what is acceptable within the time in which you do it. Yeah. Um, but, but, uh, um, but yeah, I think it definitely has uh, gone downhill, you know, and I don't want to rant like, uh, you know, Grandpa Simpson with an onion on my belt, but um, it has, unfortunately, it, it has lost a little bit of something around these games. Now, I think, you know, for the Carolina game, for the big ACC games, it's still there. It's it's loud. It's, you know, what Mike Krzyzewski will call club camera. And, you know, you sort of still get that. But, um, but yeah, it is. It is a little unfortunate. I think you have lost something in that, and you can't see it when those empty ones. Now, in the um, you know, when students are on break, you know, that's sort of a different thing. Um, they do sell those tickets. Um, that's one of the few times general public can get seats uh, in there. And then some students do go back. So when I was in school, uh, you know, I'm from North Carolina, so I would usually just drive back if there was a game, um, and then you could you know get in with your with your Duke student ID and uh, and sit down there. But yeah, I think it's gone downhill a little bit, and I think. You know, I think it's, uh, you know, I don't know exactly. I'm not close enough to the situation to say exactly why that is, but it is visible. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking of some possibilities, not necessarily what is, just what could be. And, I mean, yeah, the the basic element going on today or what, what just is, is the fact that you could pretty much say that about every sport, about every team, about every group of fans in every arena, like, it used to be better. Whether people are imagining that or not. I think it's just, yeah, it's a different kind of atmosphere. And I, I, I do think if there is one thing I've, I'm a little more confident in saying, it is the viewing experience, just being better not at the games. As you mentioned, you're not having to watch on these little TVs or listen to the radio or however anyone did listen to it before. So I do think uh, that does have an effect. Yeah. Let me, let me quiz you. I think you'll know this. Stephen F. Austin, uh, Duke obviously lost them. Who? What was the uh, last team, and uh, what year was the last time Duke lost at home pre New Year's? Yeah, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. Lost at home pre New Year's. W- when was the last time before 
Stephen F. Al- Stephen F. Austin. Oh boy, the last time Duke lost at home pre New Year's. Um, well, uh, obviously you have to go back before the St. John's game because Duke had the long non-conference winning streak. Well, actually, I guess you don't technically have to. There could have been a uh, ACC because we played. You know, Duke played Florida State and almost lost. Um, uh, was it last year they almost lost in Cameron two years ago? Um, I know if I went back far enough, Duke lost to Michigan on a tractor trailer dunk at the buzzer, which was just an unbelievable way for that game to end. Stop uh, right there, Ray. You got it. That it? Yeah. yeah that is it. Yeah. They actually lost to Illinois the year before. Um, but yeah, M- Michigan, um, you know, it's, it's crazy because you kind of forget how cool the home and homes were. For, for periods of time, I know like Duke even yeah. played like UCLA home and home for periods oh, yeah. of time. There was obviously the St. John's and there was Temple, but Michigan was pretty intense for a Mich- while. There's actually like articles yeah. about it, and Michigan beat Duke three times during the mid '90s in a row, and it was it was pretty wild. Yeah, we'll go back and watch that first game. I mean, the first time uh, Duke, you know, defending national champions, goes up and plays the Fab Five, you know, when they're, um, you know, their freshman year, uh, Fab Five and uh, Rob Polinka, right? Um, so, uh, they go up there and they play, and that's a, that was a heck of a game. I mean, I love how you say Fab Five and Rob Pulling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Fab Four, I guess, you know, that was before, uh, you know, the full starting lineup. But, um, yeah, that was a great game. You know, they played a really great series. And, and even once, uh, Tommy took over there, they had some interesting games. Um, you know, the, the Michigan program just fell off very quickly, um, you know, with the investigations that were going on. And, uh, you know, it, it just all sort of spiraled. And, you know, Krzyzewski never really likes to coach against his own guys. So they went from there to um, the next home-and-home home series. They had a Georgetown series for uh, a few years in there, too, um, you know, and they kept going back and forth. And, of course, that was in, you know, 2010 when they came up to D.C. Uh, and got trounced in January. Um, so that was a series that they had. And, uh, you know, Temple and John Chaney was there, as you said. Temple came to Cameron. You know, Bill Cosby, I remember very specifically Bill Cosby, famous Temple uh, uh, backer, um, possibly an alum, but certainly a, a backer. Um, and uh, he came into camera and got a huge cheer. And uh, we had a, you know, we want putting pops chant or something. And, you know, had a good time with Bill Cosby back when that was, you know, we didn't know, we didn't yeah, know, yeah. you know, back then. So you look back on it now and you're like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't have done it. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so they did have those. And I do love those. I, lo- I loved when Duke was in the Breslin Center. I mean, there's just something special about that Duke uniform being in the Breslin Center and seeing that. Like, I really do like that. You know, I love the UCLA series. Um, now, granted, that was, again, changing of powers. You know, Duke had a dip. Um, they went out there in 95 when UCLA won the national title, got smoked, and then it started tilting back into Duke's favor, you know, by 1998. Uh, so uh, that was uh, Baron Davis was a point guard on that team, Jelani McCoy. Um, I think maybe the younger O'Bannon brother was still there. Um, but it was, a, it was a really good team, man, yeah, Charles. Um, Ed was playing for the EA All-Stars by that point, I think. It was a, a touring team that beat Carolina, by the way, in their, their 2002 season where they went 8-20 and 20 or whatever it was. Um, but uh, anyway, they came to Cameron, and Duke beat them by 40 or so. It was like 120-80. to 80. That was a top-10 game. That was the game Elton Brand came back after he had injured his foot. Like, that is – when people talk about great moments in Cameron where Cameron just loses his damn mind, the moment – Elton Brand came back into that game. You can find it on YouTube. You know, it's about 14 minutes in or so. And uh, Elton Brand checks into that game, and that place just erupted. Um, you know, that was just a very special season. But it was great, you know, just seeing those UCLA uniforms in Cameron is so cool, you know. So I wish I wish that's something that um, 
that 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 we could retain. You know, St. John's has just fallen off, and that that series isn't quite the same. Now you have the twenty game um, ACC schedule, so it's going to make it harder to have that weekend. Um, you know, there's usually that one weekend in early February where you would play a non-conference, but, um, but yeah, it's really cool. And it was great to see, you know, it's just, that's why I love when the ACC big 10 challenges played on home courts. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm looking through this and, uh, three straight losses, 95 through 97 and then yeah, 108 to 64 Duke ends the yeah. uh, losing streak with a, uh, with a bang. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's funny because, like, for the uh, the decade pod that I hope we'll be doing, I was just going through, like, and seeing all the non-conference and the tournaments and all, all the stuff, like, pre-New Year's or even some of it uh, going on after the New Year with the non-conference. And it really did end in terms of, like, scheduling anyone with the uh, Champions Classic. I think when it started in 2012, that pretty much cut it out because he, like you look at the 2010 and 2011 schedule they were still playing a lot of decent teams both home and away in uh, home and homes and one-off types of games and it just stopped after that I mean there's still occasional like St. John's but never to this to the extent of I would say before 2012 and it's a shame yeah they used to have a marquee non-con in December too that's where they played you know Pitt um you know before they were in the ACC um with uh uh levance fields was the point guard's uh name and uh uh aaron gray the sort of a stiff of a seven footer that still causes problems and you know we lost in uh duke lost in overtime in that game and uh yeah they used to have that you played gonzaga and msg one weekend well they uh, still do that they still have the uh one like they did texas tech last year and um yeah. i guess they didn't this year um yeah they don't this i mean i think the 20 game is just really going to limit your flexibility on what you can do yeah, and Kay said, like, uh, I mean, he plays so many ACC games, and uh, even when it's, I guess, a down year, then uh, it's still tougher than other teams, I guess, he would imagine. And there's always going to be the elite uh, big ACC Big Ten and yeah. the Champions Classic, so, yeah. That's why I never worry about it. There's a whole mantra about, you know, Duke doesn't go on the road and play anybody. I mean, who cares in the non-conference? You play, if anyone else in the country played 10 ACC row games or 9 ACC row games, I think that's going to prepare you as well as anything else, you know? Like, what difference does it make that it's out of conference, you know? You're the only school in the country that has to go to North Carolina every year, uh, well, us and uh, Duke and NC State, but, you know, that that's just a, that's a heck of a thing to do every year, and you know you're, you're, you're going to likely have to play one of, you know, Virginia or Louisville or someone like that so yeah I agree but I mean it's kind of like the stat I gave in the last pod in terms of uh Carolina after losing to Gonzaga now they've lost 30 uh pre-New Year's games um in the last 11 years and Kay has lost I believe it's 36 pre-New Year's games in uh the last uh 32 no in the last 36 years he's lost 32 pre-New Year's games it's wild but I will say, like, I mean, I'm not saying Kay should do it, but Roy, he challenges himself, like, or he challenges the team. He'll he'll schedule like anyone. I mean, there's a reason they they played. He lost so many times against Kentucky and Texas. I mean, Texas. I, I don't know how you lose six times in a ten year period, and Kentucky <laughs> four. But yeah. yeah, I mean, Duke lost as many games in the ten year period from uh, 2010 through 2019, or I guess when I say that the non conference is a technically the year before but either way it's 10-year period and duke lost 10 total games in that same period but they don't play as tough a schedule and k his reasoning is absolutely legit 
yeah. can understand it, but sometimes, I mean, Roy, he will go out and play anyone, and I respect that as well. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess. I, you know, I'd like to see those actually stacked up, because one thing Duke does is, uh, I think it actually speaks, some of it speaks to just Mike Krzyzewski's strengths as a coach. One, he is as good as anybody um, that has ever been in getting a team to come together quickly. I mean, you see that with USA Basketball. You see that every year. I mean, when was the last time Duke came out of the gate and struggled? You know, even when they lost, like the Jabari Parker year, and they lost to Kansas in the Champions Classic. You know, we've seen – but they don't play poorly. You know, they come out and they play really well right out of the gate. A lot of times that's been the best game they've played. Two, he's really great in those short tournaments. So he wins those uh, tournaments he enters – uh, every year, you know, the battle for Atlantis and, and, you know, the, the, uh, you know, going out to Hawaii, all these tournaments, he tends to win. Whereas, you know, that's just, I think Roy Williams, it takes his teams a little bit longer to get up to speed because he has somewhere he's actually, he's trying to get them to do something very specific. Whereas I think Mike Krzyzewski is very good at saying, here's what I got, here's what we're doing, um, and, and pulling something together. So, um, I think it actually speaks to, to some degree to, to something that uh, Mike Krzyzewski does well. Now, of course, the end game is you want to win the national title. So is he preparing his team as well as anyone to do that? You know, I guess you can debate about that. But, um, you know, I, I think that actually speaks to one of his core strengths, which is just an ability to put 12 guys on a roster. And in the first, you know, month of that uh, team, Mike Krzyzewski is going to get more out of them than any other coach. How about, how about uh, Belmont 2012? Ooh, didn't come out strong there. I, I uh, totally proved you incorrect. No, I'm just kidding. It's, <laughs> it's, it's an outlier game. I mean, well, might, yeah. as well, might as well add Northwest Missouri State. Or oh, well, you would add Vermont, like one of the worst games Duke ever played. You know, that that game was a disaster. You know, that was... Uh, that was actually a couple games in, yeah. Yeah, and it's the same thing. You know, Now, Belmont was actually a really, really good team that year. They might have, they were like borderline top 25 by the time they came to Cameron. They were a team that, you know, you sort of had an eye on. So now, and, you know, and that score was a little bit closer because that game ended on a meaningless three. But still, so instead of being uh, whatever the final score was, is a two-point game, a three-point game, it was really more like a six. But that was um, a one-point game. I actually thought somebody I, made a free throw yeah. in order to win it. I think like Rodney Hood or uh, something. Oh no, no, no. Well, no. I mean, the last, the very last play of that game was Belmont hitting a three from like. Oh, wait, the, no, that's 2012, so not Rodney. Hash mark. So you're probably thinking about the Vermont game. Yeah. The, the Rodney Hood team. That was a. That's the. That is probably that game was worse than Stephen F. Austin in terms of the way Duke played. That is the worst defensive game I have ever seen Duke play. I've ever heard <laughs> Duke playing. Um, it was just brutal. That was, you know, there's a lot of what Krzyzewski has done where his system just, it wasn't working. You know, when basketball started going to the pick and roll so much with the way he was playing the game, it's just too easy to lift the defense, spread them out, and then kill them behind, you know. And you, you got to the point where you would have, uh, who is the player at Miami, uh, Angel? Um, Hernandez. Yeah, Angel, who was just like, yeah, we knew exactly what they were going to do, you know, and we just we just crushed him, you know, and Laranaga and Miami came in and just destroyed Duke that year, and State destroyed Duke, you know, back-to-back games. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that was – so, uh, but, you know, generally speaking, Mike Krzyzewski does a great job of getting a lot out of talent very early in the year. All right, and the seeing guys like whoever's listening, this is what you're going to get with me and Ray. It's a lot of kind of behind the uh, – kind of stories behind it, which I, which I enjoy. Um, rather than kind of straight info, and both is fine, but this is this is a, a kind of a welcome difference from uh, what, what what I usually do. And again, both are equally fun and entertaining for me. But uh, you'll get a little different uh, kind of perspective of Duke. And I will say, but one more thing, Duke actually, how many? If you didn't re- recognize this at the time, how many All Americans do you think they started against Walford? You mean high school All Americans? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Burger Boys, McDonald's All-Americans. 
Oh, uh, how many do they start or play? Like actually in the starting Sorry. lineup, the five. Uh, all right, let's well, head through. So Vernon Carey was. Um, Jordan Goldwire, of course, was not. Um, Alex O'Connell was not. Uh, Cassius Stanley, God, I don't even remember last year. Because <laughs> Cassius Stanley committed so late because Boogie Ellis had signed. Um, and then uh, the – who am I forgetting? Who was the fifth uh, starter in that? Oh, Jack White, who definitely wasn't because he came out of Australia. Um, so I don't remember. I can't uh, – one? Yep. I don't you know, so. when was the last time? Um, would you guess the 80s, 90s, 2000s, or 2010s? Let's narrow it down. When do you think the last time Duke only start, was that Duke only started one All-American in a game? I'm sorry, McDon- McDonald's All-American. Uh, it has to have been a long time ago. Because even when Duke went through its downturn in the mid-90s, the problem wasn't that they weren't recruiting highly rated players. It's that they were recruiting players who didn't live up to the billing, who weren't, you know, they were the Ricky Prices of McDonald All-American. For whatever reason, their career just didn't work out. So I would guess it's probably as far back as the 80s. No. Guess another decade. <laughs> well, we're going to narrow it down because I think this is really interesting. All right. Um, I'm trying to think did somebody sneak through like what are those talent uh, well 90s no although I assume at this point uh, it was sometime in this decade the 2000s no 2010s uh, 2010s what so was it the so Jabari Parker the year he was here uh, he was on the team so Quinn Cook probably didn't make McDonald's All-American because he missed his senior year because he was hurt he was a McDonald's All-American oh Quinn Cook was mm-hmm hmm I don't but didn't he, he injured himself? Maybe he injured himself later in the year and he made the team, you know, because he had that, uh, uh, he hurt, was it his Achilles or something coming out of high school? He was, no, I, thought, I thought it was his knee um, coming he, out. Maybe uh, is right. But something coming out of. Uh, uh, yeah, because he wasn't able to, uh, they traveled somewhere. And I don't know if he just didn't play or if he wasn't even able to go on the trip. But I mean, I mean, there's a human element involved, and he didn't get that chemistry early on, and I do think it affected the team. He could have been, he could have had a much bigger impact as the point guard, which they could have desperately used that year. So yeah, yeah that, he was definitely affected so by just, that uh, yeah, lingering injury. Tyler Thornton took a lot of those minutes. He was definitely not an All-American. He was a kid from here in D.C. I think he was a Gonzaga kid. Went to Gonzaga mm-hmm. here in in, in D.C. He did. Um, so uh, I, I will stop you right there because you were you were pretty much on it. But it's crazy because it is literally only one game in the season that for somehow – because if you look at uh, the game logs of Quinn Cook and then you look at the game logs of Emil Jefferson, there was only one game when both of them didn't play and it was just Jabari. And I don't know how Rodney Hood didn't make All-American because I think he was like number 25 ranked, but he didn't. But either way, there was only one game. That was March 8th, 2014 against North Carolina Mm. when – Quinn Cook and Emil Jefferson both did not start. It was the only game, and it was just Jabari. So it was. It's really interesting. That was the rescheduled game too. It was at Chapel Hill. That game was. was that oh the- wow! Well, yeah. Wasn't there like snow? Wait, hold on. No, that was March. Well, yeah, but that was the year it was rescheduled. The Jabari year, it was snowing. The first game was at Chapel Hill, so that would have been the second game. But the first game was at Chapel Hill. Yeah, it was snow. There was a, a snow and. The, you know, uh, Carolina fans were upset because Duke didn't travel over. They thought they should travel over and the 15 was clear and whatever. So they wound up playing later and uh, Carolina won the game. What's uh, the exact uh, distance from uh, Duke to North Carolina that they would have to travel? 
Um, somewhere in the range of uh, eight miles from uh, maybe ten from uh, Cameron to uh, the Dean Smith Center. Um, but I will say, uh, it is you just never know. It's 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 thing you don't want to take chances on because I always felt that way. Like ah, I'm gonna go drive. I'm going into work. It's just a little snow. You can account for yourself. You can't account for the other idiots on the road. Um, so, you know, I have just, as I've gotten older, I've tended to be more cautious there too. So, I mean, and it's not like there's a real competitive advantage. It's not like Duke was hurt or anything. Like, I don't know what the competitive advantage would have been. Like Carolina fans felt like, oh, you know, it's going to, all the students will be there and the blue hairs won't be there. But if anyone could get there, why wouldn't the blue hairs be there? I don't know. So, um, but yeah, that was that game. And that game Duke started off well, and then it went sideways. That's why, you know, we talk a lot about how, you know, all these soft narratives are, are useless. But that was a team that as soon as the first thing went wrong, man, they just didn't have that one player who just grabbed him by the by the collar and just just straighten him out. Um, you know, and that's that was one of the, the downfalls of that team, uh, among many others. That, in fact, they played no defense. Yeah, they uh... – they, they really didn't play many close games, and the ones they played, they lost, because uh, most of their victories were all at least over 10. Yeah, when it when it got down to some uh, close games towards the end of the season, I mean... They, they just, did one one close win, though, the last game against Maryland before Maryland left to the Big Ten. Uh, I think that was, uh, isn't that the one that ended with a Jabari Parker, I mean, essentially ended with a Jabari Parker dunk um, that looked a lot like the Jason Tatum dunk over Kennedy makes a few years later. That was the last time that... Um, Last time Maryland came to Cameron, I think. I think Maryland's shot like rimmed out at the last uh, second, and uh, oh, shoot, I'm, my mind's blanking. Who's their coach again? Um, Turgeon is his coach now. Yeah, I kept wanting to say Ralph Friesen. I'm like, no, that's the wrong sport. <laughs> wrong um, yeah, Turgeon was like, oh, it must be like the Duke basketball gods. I think that's the only reason why that didn't fall. But uh, yeah, yeah they, they they did take that game. Yeah, and then I think they lost him, turned around and lost him in the tournament, didn't they? Like, I was going over the head-to-heads over the last decade. I mean, that's something I'll go over. But, well, uh, well, they did beat Maryland in the last game. Maryland actually ended up at two out of the last three. Maryland did win, including the Des Wells game, which yeah. is the, it's the only time in the decade that uh, Duke went one and done in the ACC tournament. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been the team to do it. Um... No, actually, no, it was the year before that happened. Oh. 2013. Oh. Uh. Um. Oh yeah. So 2013. So that wouldn't have. If that was the last year, that wasn't. Uh, that wasn't your bar year. 2013 was actually a very good uh, Duke team. Yeah. Um. That was when Ryan Kelly got hurt though, and they kind of lost a little bit of what was working for him when Ryan Kelly got hurt. But uh, Mason Plumley won the Big Man of the Year award that year, and uh, uh, you know, that was a pretty good thing. They beat Louisville, the eventual national champion, in the battle for Atlantis that Thanksgiving, and. Uh, you know, it was a pretty good team. Now, Louisville didn't have um, uh, Gorgiu Ding, I think, was their center. He was out for that game. Um, and uh, so it wasn't a full Louisville team. But, you know, it's just, they beat him that game and then, of course, played him in the Elite Eight. And Look, if Kevin Ware lasts the don't. entire game with his leg intact, then it counts. Yeah. Boy. Yeah, that was uh, that was horrific. You talk about horrific moments of the decade. That was... That was actually a really cool kind of thing. I'm I'm still quite not quite sure... Um, I, I read this like I read a little article about um, I think Quinn Cook, his mom actually surprised him after the final against Louisville at the Battle for Atlantis that year. It, it turns out her and his late father, they actually eloped um, previously um, when uh, they got married. And like it was just like a really cool thing because Quinn had a huge game against Louisville. And then his mom surprised him when he was there. And it was, it was, it was just one of those moments 
that kind of goes beyond basketball. So that was yeah. kind of an under-the-radar story right there. Um, do you want to talk about Wofford here? We got sidetracked. <laughs> yeah. All right. I mean, to, to be perfectly honest, there are games that, while I don't discount certain aspects, and it, it, if you look hard enough, you'll find legitimate stuff. I think Wofford was a stat skewer game. I mean, that I, I would put that into the stat skewer category. There was a lot more and a lot more definitive of those last year, and to be honest, in pretty much most of the recent years, in terms of Duke would just destroy teams really quickly, and it was just tough to take too much away from it. Yeah. Wofford, I think because they beat North Carolina at, like, it was kind of the optimal time they played North Carolina – I think people forget. I mean, they lost uh, Fletcher McGee. They lost um, Cam Jackson. I mean, those are two great, great players. And then Mike Young. No, no disrespect. Uh, I feel bad. I can't remember their current coach's name. But Mike Young was a hell of a coach. Now he's obviously at Virginia Tech. Yeah. I mean, it's a rebuild year for Wofford. It's no disrespect. Look, they're not a great team. I, I don't think there's any chance. And I could be wrong. Um, I just don't think they're they're a good team. I think they played North Carolina at the most optimal time. I, I do think if anyone knows the uh, – I mentioned this a little bit uh, on my last pod. There is the Ewing theory that uh, – I didn't mention actually who created uh, – Bill Simmons is the yeah. one who created it. Well, actually, so Bill Simmons' friend is the one who created it. The whole thing is garbage. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, I mean the column that he wrote, you know, so I – before I worked at Fan House, I used to work at uh, Page 2 and ESPN and ESPN the magazine. And, uh, you know, kids, you want to learn more about periodicals, consult your local library. They used to be a thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Bill's, uh, Simmons column, uh, yeah, it starts off, he's talking about his friend had this idea, the Ewing theory, and I believe, I haven't read it in a while, but I'm pretty sure it says not only does the Knicks play better without Ewing, but Georgetown played better without Ewing, which is the most ludicrous thing. <laughs> that is the pinnacle. Those Georgetown teams are some of the greatest college basketball teams that ever were. Uh, three Final Fours, won a national title, you know, came within... Uh, Villanova playing out of its mind in the second half to, uh, you know, winning back-to-back national titles. So I always thought that whole thing was was absolutely ridiculous. And then, of course, you know, on the podcast, we were referring to it in the old uh, Okafor theory, which was uh, which was ridiculous um, at the time and is ridiculous mm-hmm. now. And, uh, you know, I mean, there is something to be said for the idea of, you know, what we would now call – you know, uh, putting too many possessions into low efficiency players. So I think that's kind of what it's getting like the Andrew Wiggins, like the guys who, you know, need to shoot the ball 30 times to score 20 points. Right. So you take those guys out of the ecosystem who just look like it's really a money ball kind of thing. You know, they're, they're, they're guys who look like they play and their back of the card stats may look okay, but the way they're doing it, you know, Joe Carter, right. The hundred RBI guy, um, you know, who, who didn't drive a lot of value otherwise, um, so I think there's something to be said for that, but in the context of, um, in the context of Okafor, I, I always thought that was, uh, that was a little bit off. Yeah, well, I mean, either way, I do, I do think there's an aspect to it which can be involved at times the same the same way. Like it's just when a when a a star or a guy who can be like among the best players on the team when he goes out, the, everyone else kind of they they lock it in because they know they have to like. Yeah play at their best to do it. But it, it wouldn't last for a period of time. Yeah. It's like with Duke, when they when they rolled Clemson without Okafor, it it wasn't the same thing. It wouldn't have lasted for a, a long stretch. But I will say, like, the Cassius Stanley thing, when he, when he went out against Winthrop and then uh, against Michigan State, it, for some, they might have looked at it and think, oh, they're better the same way when Bagley went out and all that nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think when Trey went out, 
the defensive switching and the communication was unbelievable. It was on point versus Wofford. Everyone was in tune. Everyone was locked in. It's, I mean, the switching and the rotating was unbelievable. No, yeah. they're not better without. I know nobody was saying, or hopefully nobody was saying they're better without Trey. I just think let's just immediately put that out there. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I, I think your your general point. So when you talk about you know teams playing better without their best player for that one game, that's really that's sort of a different idea. And you know who used to really espouse that was Dean Smith. He would always say, you know, when you lose that star player, teams can put together one great game that next game without him. You always have to be careful. So I mean, Dean Smith was kind of a sandbagger anyway, like you know, in the way that he would talk to. The- you know, this, you know, Leitner is going to score 50. He's the greatest player ever. You know, that sort of stuff. Just that's how he was, which is fine, right? You just, you, you build up the challenge. Um, you, you know, you take the pressure off your team. Um, but he always said that, you know, and, and I think, I think there is something to be said for that. You have that one game where everybody can, can pull together, but it doesn't last, right? Because you just, you, you can't repeat it. Um, but yeah, Wofford, I thought there was very little to, to take away. And by the way, the coach is McCauley. Jay McCauley, I think is, uh, is his name. Okay. Um, so, and I thought that actually, so I, yeah, usually I will look for something, uh, if something really stands out, you know, it's the, the idea of that, yeah, there's small sample sizes, but if something really stands out, it can be significant. You know, if you put LeBron James in a basketball game with a bunch of five-year-olds, you don't have to have him shoot a hundred times to realize that he's going to shoot better than an average, um, you know, average number. You can just, you know, he's going to score so proficiently, right, that it's, 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 it's so significant at an earlier um, point. But I didn't think there was anything from Wofford at all. I mean, I think it was it was great that Duke played that game smartly. But one, they were such a physical mismatch for Wofford. And two, I thought Wofford actually played that game really stupidly. I thought it was a badly coached game by Wofford. You know, there's two ways you can attack this Duke team. I think we've seen it, um, you know, this season uh, defensively. One, you can do the Stephen F. Austin. You can just, uh, you know, from a defensive standpoint, just get up in the grill, force the ball out of Trey's hand, um, just really, you know, bring some size against him. Uh, make people make decisions, and that's where you see, you know, the turnovers that happened at the beginning and the end of that game. Um, the second one, which is what we usually see happening to Duke around this time of year, is teams start just packing the lane. And you saw Virginia Tech do that when Vernon Carey was in the game, uh, and they were able to frustrate Duke. And you just pack it in, and you say, I'm going to take away Carey, and I'm going to take away all your drives because the Duke offense, you know, is so heavily predicated off of ISO or one guy drives, and then you hit the lane, and then there's nowhere to go, and they can't, you know, people are standing around, so they're easy to cover, and it just really disrupts the Duke offense. And I feel like we see that every year in December or January, and it always amazes me that it seems like it comes to us as a surprise um, to Duke. It seems like it should be day one install with this offense. Um, so there's two ways that you can do it, and Wofford didn't either, you know. And then the other thing they didn't do was take advantage of Duke's god awful transition defense. Like they, uh, Duke, like they had a couple of lapses in that game, but Wofford never really pressured them. You know, they never pressed them. They played that slow pace they always play. You know, Wofford tried to play their game, and it just wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna work. So um, I don't think there's a ton you can take from it other than say, hey, you know, Duke recognized the mismatch. They fed the big man. Um, they worked it off of. Uh, Carey, uh, and then Joey Baker stepped up. So you look at individual performances. I like Joey Baker's effort in that game. I like not just that he hit the shots, but the different ways that he hit the shots. You know, earlier this year, you know, in the exhibition against, whoever the second exhibition was against, he had a couple three-pointers. But they were all pretty much just spot-up threes. You know, he's just standing there, and he hits it. And, you know, I, I feel confident he can do that. But we saw him, you know, move with the ball a little bit this time. You know, uh, he had that one nice three where he pump fakes. Guy goes in the air. He sidesteps, shoots the three. You know, he finds the space because that's 
really the skill at this level is not being able to shoot. It's about being able to find the space. So I thought he was a positive um, just from his individual development within that game. Uh, and then I thought that yeah, the defense, to your point, I thought they did a pretty good job. I thought it was a little rough. There's still some rough transitions at the one and five when they're handing off to Vernon Carey. Like that, you know, when he's got to take over the ball handler has been a little rough in the last two games. And that was still a little rough, I thought, in that game. But otherwise, you know, really strong effort. You know, Duke had a season low nine turnovers forced in that game. And still played pretty good defense. You know, they were really good about pushing Wofford off the three-point line because that's what Wofford wants to do. They shot 51% of their shots from threes coming into the game. Uh, Duke held them to something like 38%. Um, so they did a really good job of running them off the line and then not giving up too much behind it because the switching was pretty good um, throughout. But, you know, so you, you say, you know, well played, Duke. You did what you have done against an overmatch opponent, but you can't, you know, you can't really – say that the team has elevated itself, you know, as a result of that game. Yeah, I mean, I think Vern Carey still, I think that the issue is he gets kind of trapped in no man's land in terms of when to help, how far to help, um, and when to switch, all, all that stuff. And I think that's what Stephen F. Yep. Austin was able to take advantage of, especially with the main thing I kept saying of the perimeter guys extending out, allowing yep. easy entries, and then there was the big-to-big action. It wasn't... Yep kind of these drives into the paint like I think the, some of the commentators were imagining it was literally just it's getting inside too easily and then it's like what Kansas what they wanted to do except they don't have the Azabuki and uh, the other guys uh, whatever his name is um like they're not as uh as good of playmakers like say what you want I mean these these guys for a Stephen F. Austin had experience and they were just they were really good and too often Jack White Matthew Hurt and Vernon Carey they just got caught in no man's land yeah, that's where that Duke defense collapses. It's that interior, that second pass in the interior. You know, it's, usually, it's not so much anymore just to try to trade. You're not just beating the guy one on one to the hoop. It's that second pass that's missing that rotation. And you know, and that's that's the challenge of the Duke defense. Everything is switched so aggressively that you have to be right again and again and again. And it just it's like uh, dominoes. You know, once one falls, and uh, we saw it. And that was just an that Stephen F. Austin. You know, obviously we haven't done a pod this year so we haven't talked about it but that was just a weirdly bad game you know it was it was just odd at the end you know like Chesky always has this you know let him figure it out thing at least once a year but like at the end of the game and then at the end of uh, uh overtime where nothing has happened it's just stunning you know there's a, i think uh uh shane ryan had the best tweet on he's like an entire community of duke fans just yelled at the tv call a damn timeout roy you know, like it really felt it felt like a Roy Williams moment where everybody just going, call a timeout. Nothing's working. Why are you just letting him dribble in place? And then at the end, you know, and then they kept screwing up the the rotation in the transition defense, you know, where the lead guard always has to go back. The top guard always has to go back. So whoever is at the top, you know, has to be the first one back. You have to rotate. You can't leave that vacant. And uh, of course, that's exactly what happened. And uh I mean, you know, yeah, he's going over it. I mean, that was Cassius Stanley being over aggressive, trying for yeah. the rebound. And so that's what makes me like bewildered where Coach K keeps saying, like, they won't listen to me. Like, I keep telling them they won't listen. Are you literally telling Cassius Stanley, don't go in for the offensive rebound, rotate back, and he's just blatantly ignoring you? Because I, I don't know. For me, I just have a tough time believing that. I'm not saying yeah. he's lying, but like, 
Like, it seems pretty simple. Like, just don't go for the offensive yeah. rebound. Rotate back. It's that yeah. simple. It's awareness of where you are and where the, where the other guards are, you know, where the whole court positioning. And uh, there was just a lot of people who screwed that up. You know, Trey screwed it up. But, yeah, I mean, throughout the game, it was it was weird to see. Um, you know, and then poor Jack White had to go try and chase him down and didn't, didn't make it there in time. And uh, Jack White is probably as good a transition defender as, you know, Duke has. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, it was just a weird, just weird throughout um, that game. I mean, it felt, it felt like an NCAA. It felt like the Kansas game, where it's just stuff seemed really. Uh, I'm sorry, I meant the yeah. Kansas game in 2018. Sure. The, the, the game that makes me angrier than any other basketball game ever in existence. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, it seemed like stuff one, was three, so obvious, and then it's just I don't know. That one three one. I always think about that. Just the weirdest decision coming out of halftime. The one three one against Kansas. Duke hasn't really played it all year. Doesn't really know how to defend it. Immediately gives up a baseline three. Uh, that was uh, that was a, then they lost that game in overtime too. So, um, so yeah, that was uh, it was a it was a bizarre it was a bizarre kind of feeling game. And the other weird stat about that game is the reason I thought Duke was going to win that game um, was that uh, Stephen F. Austin turns the ball over constantly. They're like 313th in the nation in turnover percentage. Mm-hmm. Uh, they played Central, the other Division One school in uh, Durham. They beat Central by 30. Central turned them over, I think, 26 times in a game they won by 30. And then they come into Cameron, and they only turn the ball over 14 times. That is second lowest in the season for that team in an overtime game. Like, it was just a really bizarre, you know. And that just, look, this is what we always need to remember about teams. And, you know, you certainly understand this. is Teams aren't a data point. You're not a single place. Duke isn't one or two. You have a range of outcomes. You know, you play really well. You're the best team in the country. You play at the bottom of the barrel like they did that night. You know, your range of outcomes is somewhere in the 30s, I don't know, the 20s maybe. Um, and then Stephen F. Austin, you know, the range of outcomes is going to be lower, but they have that top end. And when that top end meets the bottom end, um, you know, things like this happen. Like, I think Duke could beat that team uh, if they played them again. But, uh, you know, you're always a range of outcomes. And, you know, as uh, the old football coach in uh, Charlotte used to say, picked a bad day to have a bad day. So, um, but you know, at the end of the day, it's not college football, so you got a whole season to to make amends. Yeah, I mean, and Duke hasn't really turned teams over a lot. I mean, a lot of the, the turnover percentage when it's high, it's uh, I don't know if teams get nervous at Madison Square Garden or what, but it seems like every time they play at Madison Square Garden, they turn the ball over a lot, and the other team turns the ball over a lot, and the other team just turns it over a little more. But it's like they just throw it out of bounds. It's weird. Like Kansas did it, uh, Georgetown did it. La- obviously, Texas Tech did it last year, and it's yeah. And it leads to these like huge possession games. So you think it's like, oh, it's fast paced. No, it's just these. They're just like throwing it out of bounds every possession, and it's just it's weird. Yeah, yeah. Um. All right. All right. So before we get into kind of je- uh, overall thoughts, he- here's here's the thing. I think Kay and I, we need to have some therapy because, I mean, on the on the pod. After Georgetown heading into Stephen F. Austin, I made the case, a pretty objectively valid case, although it's tough for me to say that, that Baker needs to not just play more, but play a lot more. I also said Wendell Carter, I mean, Wendell Moore would be my long-term choice at the four, but I do realize that Kay loves Hurt and Jack White occupies that role as well, so it would be a tougher situation Mm -hmm. for that to happen on a consistent level. I do still believe in it, but I do understand that's asking for more. But after I said the Baker thing, Baker played two and a half minutes versus Stephen F. Austin. Then, on the pod I recorded after Stephen F. Austin went up, 
I talked uh, uh, more about how disappointed I was that Baker didn't get the chance to play with Cassius Stanley because of Stanley's injury and how I wanted that to happen more when Cassius got healthy. I made the same even stronger case on the pod after Michigan State and Virginia Tech, the one you listened to. So then what happens in the Wofford game? K plays Cassius and Baker a grand total of one minute together. So... What I'm thinking is, Cages is basically telling me, F you, I make the decisions. He's telling that to me. And yeah. then the game after, he, he he listens to me because I'm obviously smarter than K. Yeah. Everyone knows that. So I'm thinking next game, Baker and Cassius will play a lot together. Because if you look at the lineups, it's really odd. Basically, he played Cassius and O'Connell together the entire time. When one of them would sub out, the other one would sub out. And it kind of went like that. It's... I don't know. I'm just like, I don't get it. So, and I don't know. I think uh, me, me and Kay just need to sit on the couch with a therapist and kind of have it out. So that's, that's my biggest complaint, whine, bitch session yeah. about uh, stuff before we get into the uh, overall thoughts. So how do you feel about that? Do you, who's right, me or Kay? I, so, I think everyone should take my side because I'm me. I mean, the man's won five national titles. and I've won plenty. Uh, yeah, you need to break out. You need to remind him uh, that you were once singled out at a Stu Vetter's camp uh, as an outstanding camper that Nate James. Nate uh, James. Uh, yeah, was uh, can vouch for it. So uh, right there on his staff, he can just ask Nate James. So, um, you know, the, the, we just need to, to weigh these things out and maybe you'll see your side. So Joey Baker's interesting. Should he play more? Yes, he played great uh, against Wofford. Again, just wildly overmatched. Here's one of the things that worries me about Joey Baker, though. Do you know how many offensive rebounds Joey Baker has in 150 minutes of basketball? I do not. The answer is one. He is dead last on the team except for your guy, Mike uh, Buckmeyer. And uh, I think we all know that, uh, you know, Buckmeyer just needs a little more PT. Um, Buckmeyer, on the other hand, uh, defensive rebounds, he has four in five minutes. You know how many defensive rebounds that – uh, uh, Joey Baker has in 150 minutes? Nope. Of course not. It's eight. <laughs> so it's part of the problem. So that's part of the issue with Joey Baker. I really like Joey Baker. You know, uh, one, because he's showing offensive versatility, starting to score in other ways. Um, you know, we're seeing him create space for himself. He had a nice give-and-go kind of play in that uh, game, too, where he fed it into the post. I want to say it was Vernon Carey, but it might have been Javon. But he fed it into the post. And then he stepped back. He just has a nice little step back while his man was watching the ball, and he hit the he hit a three pointer. Is you know he hit, he hit several in the night. It was just a really smart, kind of sophisticated looking way to get open. You know, and we just he's just been doing that these last couple of games. Um, he also has defensive want to. You remember the game was it Georgia State where he had or was it Georgia Southern? Uh, God, who was the team they played? Um, but. Uh, he slapped the floor, you know, like he was the team kind of needed it. And it, it was just a nice little sort of, you know, assertion of energy and leadership and all sorts of things. So I really like what he's doing. But there is still some issues right, with his strength in there. And I think that's where it starts showing up is on the rebounding side, um, you know, and then who, you know, who is he going to be able to guard? Because, you know, you would like to see him at the four um, uh, or you could see him at the four, but then you run into the log jam, as you said, and, you know, window more, I think actually would be a great kind of four in the, in the justice Winslow, you know, mold of the Duke four. Um, so you just, you just worry about him being able to guard all his positions with the switches. Is, is the strength really going to be there? I mean, his defense is actually pretty good. He moves his feet pretty well, but 
I don't know. There's just, there's still some 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 strength missing there. There's still some some physicality um, that that does worry me a little bit because you got to be able to close out those possessions, you know, and uh, and and 150 minutes to be behind, you know, Jordan Goldwire and rebounding is is a little bit of a problem. Now again, 150 minutes is you know three almost four games, so it's not the biggest sample size in, that there is. But um, but I am a little worried about that uh, in terms of his ability to hang uh, defensively and physically. They are better at defensive rebounding with him on the court. So, in terms of stats. Well, um, then, I mean, you know. Uh, I mean, I think they're just telling him rotate back. I, I Like, in terms of rebounding him, just, like, block out your guy on defense, rotate back. Like, I just, maybe it's a bad thing that they're saying don't even try. Just, like, kind of do the obvious thing and rotate back. I don't think that's a bad thing with him. I mean, in time, maybe when he, he gets more confident, but I mean, I I watch these games. I, he's actually guarded multitudes of positions. I've seen him guard uh, the point guard, the shooting guards, um, the bigs, and in terms of just the energy that he brings, I mean, he does. He is a little foul happy at times, but I don't know. Like when you, especially when you're comparing it to who's going to be in his place. And that's uh, a factor. I mean, we might as well talk about it. We were just talking about everything. In terms of why O'Connell still gets big minutes, I think because O'Connell, you watch these games and it's just it's insane how often he still gets backdoored um, on defense and just isn't aware of what's going on and just gets beat off. Like defense, I mean, you're worried about Baker, man. It's rough watching O'Connell and it's just went on offense. I think O'Connell, he creates for others. Um, better at this point. Baker, he, he can knock down shots, but I think in terms of, I think Kay still believes O'Connell can make others better. And obviously he's not hitting a shot right now, but I mean, in Can- like Kansas, I mean, O'Connell was actually really good, even though he didn't hit shots that game, at creating for his teammates. Yep. Baker does not provide that right now. I'm not right. saying he never can, but right now it's not even close. O'Connell can also rebound. But in terms of just the defense in general, like Baker's not doing anything negative, and O'Connell does. Uh, like to just objectively watch O'Connell, I mean, it's it's tough. So when you're thinking about who is going to be instead of Baker, I don't think it provide whoever that is is going to provide more than what Baker can provide as just somebody who can who can spread the offense like he does. Who is legit someone they release the ball, I think it's going in, and just the energy he brings. The energy, that that is something that I don't feel like can be uh, said enough. I mean, his energy is unbelievable with a team that they don't have, uh, I, I, however you define a leader, whether it be vocal or whoever, I mean, they don't have a lot of guys that talk a lot. I think Cassius Stanley, he's becoming that. But Trey, he's more of a lead by example. He can lead vocally, but I think he's more just everyone respects him so much and deservedly so. Mm-hmm. But so I think just the little things like Baker's energy that he provides, I, I, I think it's huge. So I don't, I don't know when comparing him to who's going to be instead of him. I feel like that's something to keep in mind. And from what I've seen him guard other positions, I think he's... I mean that would that was the main reason I was worried about him at the start. His defense is shockingly good. 
um, game to game. So that, that's something that's impressed me. In terms of the rebounds, I, I would defer to you on that, but I would say I think maybe they're just playing it safe and saying rotate back every time. Don't even like think about trying for an offensive rebound. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I guess we, we're trying to tease something out of the stats. Maybe that isn't there, but, you know, you just look at It's just his peripherals outside of scoring right now. Um, so, again, I actually uh, I like uh, Joy Baker, um, and uh, I think uh, he does uh, should play uh, more. And especially when you're talking about Alex O'Connell, he has been, you know, I, I think a tremendous disappointment, um, really. Um, he, uh, you know, I, I really liked him as freshman year because, first of all, he shot like 43 percent from three. But he just moves the ball like the ball would hit him and it just went somewhere. So, you know, Duke gets so stagnant and, and ISO happy. So to have somebody who just catch the ball and keep it moving, because, you know, one of the first things we're ever taught in basketball is the ball moves faster through the air than it does, you know, by dribbling. So you need to do it. And that's what Alex O'Connell does. But, like, it's just been disappointing because even, you know, stats look okay at Wofford, but, like, a lot of it was the last two minutes of the game. So he's been disappointed. Same with Virginia Tech. So I have no problem with Joey Baker taking Alex O'Connell's minutes, but the problem is there's such a log jam throughout um, the lineup, like where are you going to play him? And when you just look beyond his his uh, his scoring efficiency, which is great, but probably isn't going to hold up. He's probably not going to have a seventy percent, you know, effective field goal. Um, he's probably not going to hold up at that level. But um, you know, the other peripherals are, are the ones that give me a little more pause. But I, I don't mind weaving him in again because uh, he's earned those minutes, and we've seen him develop. You know, that's where I started with this whole thing. We've seen his offensive game develop, and uh, yeah, he has been defensively versatile. Um, but there is just still some issues out there when Duke's running it, going to run into these bigger teams that, you know, can bring it a little bit because it's, they may be rotating him back, but right now, you know, he's got a 0.7 offensive rebounding rate, which I've never seen before. And again, you know, it's not the most important thing, offensive rebounding for, you know, for him. Uh, but Jordan Goldwire is at a 1.8, you know, Jordan Goldwire is at a 9.1 defensive rebounding rate. Joy Baker's at a six. So, um, and then you talk about assist rate. So Joy Baker's, he's up to a seven, but the problem with this team, frankly, and not just Joey Baker is that nobody really creates other than Trey Jones. So when you look down the assist rates, they're all terrible. Like a, a 7-1 should stand out as being sort of bad on a team. Um, you know, like by comparison, Jack White's a 10-1. Um, and it isn't, you know, Cassius Stanley's a 6-3. Like he just is not, you know, he does a great job driving the lane, but he doesn't pass the ball enough. You know, you can play him to shoot, uh, you know, now. He's really got to start figuring out how to develop for others. You know, Vernon Carey's actually been a pretty good passer. He's a assist rate of five. Now, you don't care as much at the center. But, you know, one thing that I've really missed, you know, one of the things we were talking about was what do you want to see more of? One of the things I always wanted to see more of out of this team that we haven't is that high-low game with Vernon Carey and uh, Matthew Hurt because I think that could really be a weapon for this team because you have to, if you play Hurt at the four, if you put him at the top, you can move him up from the free throw line all the way out to the top of the key and you have to defend him because the guy is if you let him shoot open top of the key he's going to hit you know better than 50 percent open um so you got to defend him so it really stretches the defense off of Vernon Carey there and he's he's pretty good at, at finding Carey in that high low so um you know I think that's something that uh at Duke's gotten away from so like where do you see the minutes you know shaping out what is your ideal lineup uh uh, here, you know, do you work Baker in at the three? So you go uh, Stanley at the two, Baker at the three, more or hurt, or you know, Jack White is sort of a situational guy. You know, the Australian Lance Thomas, you know, just defends everybody. You bring him in for a specific reason. Um, so maybe you don't have to think as much about him because his minutes are kind of always going to be what they are. Um, but like, how do you shake out that two through four? I mean, I, 
when I projected my lineup uh, after Georgetown, I mean, I I was pretty blunt in terms of. I mean, I mean, Hurt is going to provide more offense if he's there instead of Wendell Moore at the four, obviously. Um, Duke's history, and generally, I, I know offense is becoming more and more. Um, some teams can win with uh, shaky defense and great offense. But in Duke's history and the history of most teams, you need a great defense. And I think Moore gives a better defense mm-hmm. if, if he's in there. And there will be plenty of times, I'm sure, that Hurt would be a, a better option. I'm not saying it should stay the same the whole time. I mean, I think that was the big problem versus Stephen F. Austin. The second half lineup just never changed. Yeah. Um, so I would, I would say I think it's Trey. It's Cassius Stanley. It's... Um, it's a it's a Joey Baker, it's Wendell Moore, and it's Vernon Carey. But I will it worries me that Stanley really isn't getting much of a chance, and I have to assume that's based on practice of being a secondary ball handler. Yeah. So if when if Wendell Moore does not start, I mean his balance is just off when he dribbles. I mean it's an adventure every time. So yeah. if he does not develop more. Jordan Goldwire is just going to have to be in there as the secondary ball handler. And I love him. I just don't want it to become another Tyler Thornton situation where the value he, he provides doesn't get kind of stale by playing almost too much. I mean, and taking away, I still remember taking away minutes from Quinn Cook, taking away minutes from Rashid Solomon, that while probably a good decision at times, the amount, the percentage of times it happened was just, it was way too much because just because somebody's not going to make a mistake doesn't mean they should have uh, minutes constantly over guys who, while they will make a mistake, their ceiling is higher. It's the, it's almost the Trevon DeVal factor of, yeah, Grace now and running the point, it, there's not going to be as many mistakes, but the ceiling's just not going to be as high. And with this team, they can use every possible advantage to reach whatever their ceiling is as much as possible. So I do think the uh, five-man lineup, I said, offers the most potential by the end of the season. Um, And, okay, so here's something where I recognize going over lineups, especially after 11 games, the sample size and and the uh, types of opponents you're playing, it's very dangerous to do that. It's very kind of noisy uh, information to provide. But I still think it's worth saying this. And uh, and another thing, I uh, the the stats that I use it filters out garbage time, so it's not garbage time. So uh, Joey Baker since Georgia State, he has played in eighteen lineups, eighteen five man lineups. Mm-hmm. One of them has been a tie score. The other seventeen have outscored the opponent. And I understand they, there's so much context that goes into that, which. Obviously, is impossible to explain one by one, but it's still, I think, I mean, when you look at everyone else's lineups and the way it seems like, K, the lineup he uses the most every game gets outscored, and it's just random because this team, it's about kind of finding what works each game versus each opponent. I don't think there is one definitive lineup. I think it's whatever the matchups dictate, whatever's working well that time, whoever maybe has the hot hand for certain periods of time. So from Georgia State to now, Games four through eleven, every single lineup of of the uh, if I didn't say them, it's the most played lineups. It's it, they've outscored the opponent except for one, which is I believe like the fifteenth um, most played lineup uh, that he's been in. 
that tied, every single other one has outscored the opponent. So what that tells me is just you can put them with anyone. You can fit him in with anyone, and it doesn't work that way with everyone else. I'm not saying he's more important than any other. I just think what he provides, I think, is vital. And I think, he, like, his deep, like, I'm not saying he's J.J. Redick. Like, I'm not saying that. But, like, I don't, like, whatever J.J. Redick did with offensive rebound rates, I don't care. Like, that, that's just me. Like, he, because he provides so much more. And, and that's an insane comparison. Because when you even mention J.J. Redick, that's a whole other world. But I, I, I just think what Baker provides goes beyond that. And I, I didn't mean to make this an entire Joey Baker pod, but yeah. I, I do think he might be, if not the X factor, at least one of them, I think he needs as much time as possible to at least prove. I mean, some guys, the more time they get, all of a sudden that ultra efficiency that they're showing, it, be, it kind of it doesn't equal out like that when they get more minutes. Maybe they're better just in short spurts. You may, you may be 100% right. I'm not saying I am, but I think it's worth seeing more. Yeah, so I'm not against Baker playing more. In fact, I, you know, I think I started with that. Um, you know, and, and taking minutes away from O'Connell is is fine because he just hasn't he hasn't developed. You know, it just it's it's frankly been downhill since uh, you know a little downhill since his freshman year. Um, and then the point about rebounding is more about it's more of a canary in the coal mine, right? About the 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 potential weaknesses that you have there. Um, that was a police song. Uh, uh, all right. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, as Sting would tell you, uh, no one is going to shoot 53.3% uh, from three for the year. So we have to think a little bit about what happens when we normalize down when, you know, a great shooter, you know, even a great shooter at the college level is not shooting 53.3 from the three, especially with the line move back. Um, so you start bumping it down, but you know, I'm not really here to argue against Joey Baker playing more minutes. It's just, we got to be careful. And the other thing about like a guy like a JJ, you know, you're asking him to play two guard, whereas, you know, Baker, there probably isn't a lineup where he plays at the two here because you really want to keep, you really need to develop Cassius Stanley. Um, because, uh, you know, one, he can break down a defense. He can beat guys off the dribble, but two, he's actually a really good off ball defender. He has really good instincts there. Um, I don't think his performance since he's come back, I, I wonder, is he still a little hampered by the injury um, and just a weird schedule too? you know, to play two games. And it's been, you know, the Virginia Tech game. And then it was like 13 days off. And it's just been an odd, you know, sort of cadence uh, that he's come back to. Um, but, uh, you know, you're really going to need to get minutes for him and feed him. So you're talking about playing him at the three or four where it becomes a little bit more important to physically match up. Um, with the other team and it's going to become more important to be able to be competitive in the lane contest rebounds and things like that but really more just sort of a, a sample of we still have a ways to go with physicality i think uh in my opinion but i'm all, i'm fine with with uh with 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 baker playing more minutes and i think it would be interesting to see you know if you try wendell Moore at the four would that actually help him so the one thing you lose you don't have him on the wing quite as much i mean i guess you could run you know, the four and one and have them out there all you want to. But, you know, you could run him out at the free throw line and things like that and see would that help um, some of his decision making. Because to your point, once he puts the ball down where he's off balance and he's driving into three guys and he's got his head down and, you know, every now and again, he'll do something that's spectacular. You remember the Kansas game? He had that one drive where he went through three defenders and got to the hoop and it was just spectacular, you know. Uh, but most of the time is driving into the lane, head down and, you know, who, who knows what's going to happen. Um, now some of that may just be being a freshman and he'll, he'll get better, you know, in Virginia, the second half of the Virginia tech game, his decision-making was better. He had a really great off ball move where he had that, uh, he had a nice basket cut off ball where he just 
splashed through the lane and went down. I think Goldwire found him, or it was a really nice pass, whoever found him. But it was a great cut to make it happen, you know. It, it, to be in a position to finish, usually you have to do something to get in that position, usually. Um, so we've seen it, uh, you know, we've seen it, we've seen it progress, and I think it would be interesting to see um, what happens at the four. But, you know, that is kind of the challenge with this team. You have a lot of different skill sets, um, but you can only play one at a time. So, and a lot of that is just, is really in that three and four. What are you going to do with the three and the four? Because you have the one and the five locked down. Um, and then what are you going to do with the three and the four? And if you can't play Wendell Moore, you know, um, and his turnover rate as it is this year makes it difficult to play him sometimes, um, you know, you do have to go start pulling in Goldwire for that second ball handling option. So then you're pulling, uh, you know, Cassius off the court. So, you know, some of the weaknesses on this team uh, are going to lead to some compromised lineups if, you know, Wendell Moore can't step up as that secondary ball handler, if they don't look to Cassius to be that secondary ball handler. Um, you know, if Joey Baker, um, you know, can't take all the minutes that he can get, you know, if Matthew Hurt can't, you know, same sort of defensive issues, although he's a little bit stronger on the boards at the four. Um, so, um, but yeah, so I, you know, I think at the, at the end of that rant, I, I'm all for uh, seeing more minutes out of Joey Baker. I just want to be careful um, that a lot of the things that are going right for him right now aren't always going to go out, and there are going to be challenges that aren't maybe as obvious right now that will become more obvious if you're playing him, you know, at the four um, that we got to be mindful of. His, uh, <laughs> It's wild. His 1.33 points per possession and 60 possessions mm. ranks number 27 among 3,758 players with which with at least 10 possessions. Mm. Number 17 among 3,395 with at least 20. Number seven among 3,075 players with at least 30 possessions. And if you specify it to 42 possessions, more than 41. He's ranked number four among 2,722 players. Are you, so you're saying he can't uh, continue that every single game? You're crazy. Yeah. He can be better. He can be better. You're right. So, he can be better than 100% from the free throw line. He can hit 110% from the free throw line. So he'll step up there. So, you know, there's some room for growth there. Um, yeah, I mean, either way, yeah, those are some insane stats which aren't likely to continue at least to that level. But, uh, I mean, yeah, your point about the lineups, I, me – I kind of, I mean, with Duke in the in the recent years, with the, I mean, they're so stable in terms of what usually starts, ends up. There's very little that changes throughout yeah. the year, at least drastically. I find this really great. I like this. I like the kind of the chess match that's being played, how it forces Kay to really adapt. And when he doesn't, it's he's going to pay for it, like Stephen F. Austin. I love it. I know, I know there's many. Who probably don't. <laughs> they want uh, to find that stability as soon as possible. I kind of enjoy it, and uh, I, I do have a question for you as a Duke historian. Mm. How, how was Chris Carwell's offense his freshman year? I don't quite remember. Uh, you know, I think he was uh, pretty good off the bat. Um, you know, he came in uh, with uh, another uh, freshman, Mike Chappelle who wound up transferring to uh, Michigan State uh, midway through the 1998 season, I think, or maybe it was after the 1998 season. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I remember Chappelle is the guy who sort of had more of the flashy moves and the, the dunks and things like that. And Carroll was just like an all-around contributor. He was coming off an injury, too, coming out of high school, as I recall. Um, yeah, he's so, one of the guys. He wasn't named. Uh, he wasn't a burger boy, but he definitely would have been. Yeah. 
So I remember it was, you know, it was promising um, because that was sort of a tough time for Duke. You know, his freshman year was 1996, 7, 8, 9, 0. So 96, uh, sorry, it's uh, 97. His freshman year was 97, 98, 99, 2000, yeah. So he played 97. So that was sort of the comeback year for Duke. They went 12-4 and 4 in the ACC that year. Um, there is, of course, the legend of him guarding uh, Tim Duncan uh, against Wake Forest that year. Now, Duncan more or less had his way with him, but nonetheless, he did it. Um, you know, Duke finished first in the ACC. So I remember, you know, being somewhat excited. And, you know, but there were other young guys at the time who were a bigger star. You know, Ricky Price was a bigger young star on that team that seemed like he was destined to be the next, you know, uh, the next the next star on that team. But, uh, you know, he could play right out of the gate. And that was great to see because Duke had gone through this run of just recruiting guys who had great rankings and they just got on campus and it just, it was like, what are you looking at? You know, look back at that, you know, 1995 roster when the team went uh, two and 14 in the ACC. And, you know, you can just, you just look back now and you go, why, you know, why was this guy so highly recruited? You know, the, the you know, Taman Dimzowski was McDonald's all American and he was one of the better ones, you know, that, that came out of that, uh, came out of that time period. Um, okay. So it was a start. This is actually interesting. He was uh, he pretty much stayed in like the forty five to forty eight percent field goal percentage range, except for the freshman year when he shot fifty seven point six. That was his highest. His turnover percentage also was uh, only point nine. So, um, looking at it now, I was almost thinking because I really found a lot of comparisons in Wendell Moore to Chris Carwell. I mean, especially considering Carwell recruited him and Carwell watched him so much. I believe Wendell Moore played at the same high school as Chris Carwell's son. So he was there anyway watching. And I, I thought this was, this could be like Chris Carwell number two. I, Chris Carwell's freshman season, again, this is just looking at numbers. So I, I'm trying to remember, and I can't quite get a grip on it. He started 12 games, averaged 16.2 minutes a game. Didn't play a ton, but was efficient. Yeah. Wendell Moore, he's getting a lot. I, I, we're not seeing the efficiency. I still think there's comparisons. There's comparables, but... Um, yeah, they, I was just curious, kind of, because I do see the similarities, but obviously it's not the same yeah, situation. And, you know, Carroll had more of a physicality to him, as I, as I recall. Um, I don't know. Wendell Moore's pretty uh, physical. Yeah, I mean, he is, but it's kind of different, right? It's more of a slashing and, like, an athleticism. and. So I was talking about defense, but, yeah, yeah, you're right on offense. Yeah, but but either way, and, you know, they're just sort of built. I mean, it's not not that Wendell Moore's not a built guy, but, like, Carwell was just more compact or something, I don't know, in the way that he played. And the way he dribbled, you know, offensively always made him look more. He had this weird, like, hip. he called it the hippity-hop, like, kind of thing. The way he dribbled was just – it just looked different than the way most guys do. It was kind of hunched over. Um but, yeah, you know, and there was just something about him. And, you know, part of it, too, might have been, you know, being on campus at the time and just being able to see him up close. Um, you appreciate him more than you do on TV. But, uh, but yeah, I hadn't really uh, hadn't really thought about them as a comp. And, you know, I don't remember I don't remember him turning the ball over a lot because he just wasn't asked to make plays. You know, Wendell Moore mm-hmm. uh, is asked to make plays. and um, Yeah, real quick, I would say, like, Virginia Tech, when he didn't turn the ball over – Guess what? It's because he was on the floor with two guys who were the ball handers. He was on the floor with Trey and Goldwire. So he yeah. was the third. He wasn't the second guy who yeah. w- would be making plays. So I think that made a huge difference. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, you know, and he's certainly a great finisher, um, you know, uh, or ha- certainly has the ability to be again. You know, you made a couple plays at, at Virginia Tech where, you know, he's on the receiving end of a nice pass. But again, you got to get yourself in that position. You know, it's very rare the defense just says, oh, I'm not going to guard this guy. Where did he go? 
Um, so he's usually doing something to get himself open. So, you know, he can be an asset. You know, when you talk about X factors, I mean, to me, he is probably the X factor. So many guys on this team who could be. Somebody's going to step up. Um, or you know, yeah, well, I mean, you know, otherwise. You said uh, it. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, um, <laughs> you know, we'll we'll see. Um, but uh, somebody's going to step up. But it, you know, if Wendell Moore could be that guy if he could get the turn. Because you look again, we look at assist rates. He's the only guy on the team other than uh, Trey and Goldwire who has an assist rate that you don't look at and go, what? You know, like it's a 14.1, which is fine as a secondary guy. That's in line. You know, that's probably a little bit less than where Zion was last year. Zion was probably like a 15-something. But you're sort of in that range of where you could be, you know, a a secondary facilitator. Um, But on the other side of the ledger, turnover uh, rate 27.3. So, you know, he's turning the ball over on twice as many possessions as he's he's generating assists. And – and I think it's just dangerous to use him like he's used because if you're not without – I mean, this team needs a lot more set plays. I really like yeah. the um, the high horns that they're using a lot yeah. higher than most teams use the horns. Yeah. But eventually, like, there's ways to use it a lot differently. Like, that you can use so much more action off it than they do. I mean, there's actually a flex set they used. It was uh, – I, I still remember because this is how low the bar is set for – um, creative offense where there was a, a set play. It was when Draymond Green was talking to uh, like, it was like split screen. He was talking <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and then the game was being shown. It was like seven minutes left in the first half and they run a flex set and Trey screens off his own man as well as uh, Jack White's man as Jack White cuts along the baseline and uh, Javin Delorier throws over the top from the right wing. And it was just like, I'm like, oh my god, this is like basketball porn. Yeah. This is like what, like, I, I was like, why can't we see more of this? It's it's the same question of like, with how creative K is with the blobs and the slobs and all right. those stuff. Like, it we don't see that in half court, and it's gone back for a while, and we need more of that. So when the only really plays are uh, high horns for Trey, when Wendell, uh, some ISO. And then just kind of dumping into Vernon Carey with an occasional uh, high low from Hurt to Carey or Javin to Carey. Like, I think you could be a little more creative with this team. I think Kay knows how to be. We just, it's frustrating. Yeah. And uh, I think this team could really benefit from it. It would be nice, you know, because you watch those baseline sets and they're so nice. You know, even just a simple screen, you know, just, and it's the same. Some of those sets, you know, you, you remember JJ running them, you know, uh, on those inbounds and Kennard and all these guys and, um, you, you watch those sets and it's, it's, it's a thing of beauty, you know, and I guess maybe some of us who just grew up in a, in an age of basketball, you know, where, uh, uh, set plays, there was a lot more set plays than there was motion. Um, you know, maybe, maybe we just are a little nostalgic, but, um, yeah, I mean, it works and it gives some structure to the offense because right now it's just, you know, Trey's going to. Uh, try and make a play, and uh, if that doesn't work, goes to the wing, and, you know, the wing may or may not make a good injury pass to Vernon Carey. You know, they're not great about getting the right angle, not always great about getting the right angle to give him a, an injury pass he can handle. Um, and, uh, you know, and then the end of the shot clock comes, and Trey has to chuck something up, and, you know, it's not – that's really what worries me about this team. If you say, you know, what – you know, I don't know if enough people are talking about it or not, but I still think this is a fairly fragile offense. Like, it is still – um, you know, things can still go wrong on this team because you have two great tent poles at the one and the five. Earlier in the year, I referred to it as the donut offense because you had a good side, you know, one and the five, and then in the middle there was sort of a lot of 
a lot of nothing. Um, and a lot of those pieces have started to fill in. So maybe it's more like a suspension bridge or something like that, but it's still not, it's still not steady across. So the, there, there's a little bit of fragility in this, in this offense where things could really go south, you know, like the Stephen F. Austin game, you know, Trey had his career high in assists and he had his career high in turnovers in the same game, you know, which speaks to a lot of the, a lot of the problems of the offense of how much you're asking, um, how much weight you're asking Trey to carry, um, and they're going to have to figure that out because, you know, one of the axioms that I think we always talk about, is you got to have three guys on the court that can go get you a bucket if you want to win a national title. And right now you got two guys on the court that can go get you a bucket. you got some other guys that you can throw a ball to, and, you know, they might be able to get open and, and get a shot, but there's just not that reliable third, you know, creator um, uh, on on the floor. And, and you would hope that, you know, Wendell Moore or uh, Cassius Stanley becomes that guy, but but it hasn't quite happened yet. Yeah, I mean, well, you talked about how the old offenses, they required more sets and how Kay calls this an old school team. I mean, when when you think back to it, I mean, a lot of uh, Duke players from that era, they didn't end up stars in the NBA, if even in the NBA, but they were great college players because the offense was designed like that. And while this team doesn't have the, ex- the same kind of experience where you kind of grow in four years through the system, obviously that's a big deal. I still think it's the same idea of help this team out. Yeah, if you use them like you did at the end of Stephen F. Austin with his ISO stuff, no, they don't have the talent to do that. So when you say they're fragile, they are absolutely fragile, but especially so if K doesn't help them out. Like I think the onus this year, I've said it every year, that I really want to see that kind of fluid adjustments and adaptation every game. But, I mean, the talent was so crazy that he could get away with not doing it on offense. Now, no, the the margin for error is not like that. So I do think it's on him, and I do think the Stephen F. Austin loss, I think it was on his shoulders. So I'm interested to see how it uh, how it goes from here. Um, all right, so uh, I, I guess um, I mean we ha- we have been talking for a while, and it's a, li- a little late. So I, I will I will say um, well, let's just go into my one big thing then we'll finish up with kind of a a couple of uh overall maybe thoughts uh, uh, in terms of what maybe we could expect or hope for moving forward but the one crazy thing you talk about the fragility of the offense i think it, it absolutely is correct when you give away possessions and there's one part of this duke team or one aspect one way that duke is giving away possessions and it's odd because it's in transition but it's one specific part of transition. It's after the rebound when they're trying to push the ball. And I know Kay wanted them to push the ball constantly this year, but it's been really fascinating after Georgia state, their uh, transition, the percentage of overall offense that they use was around like 22%. And transition always drops off in terms of usage from non-conference to conference when things slow down a little bit. But I mean, it's been dropping off ever since right now uh, uh, with synergy. It's at like 16.7 and it's been dropping every game. And it's, it's it's at least some of it has to do with the fact they're terrible, but not in every aspect. They're terrible after rebounds because they keep trying to push. And when you're going, when you're pushing off of rebounds, you won't always have the numbers there. Uh, If the other team rotates back um, adeptly, you won't have the numbers. So what they're doing is relying on a lot of three-pointers. They shoot a ton of three-pointers off of uh, offensive rebounds, and they're terrible when doing that. 
So they're just giving away possessions over and over and over. And it's crazy because when you look at all the other stats, I know it's fragile. I know there's uh, there's different levels of opponents they're playing and different types of situations. But bottom line is pretty much all of their offensive stats are shockingly good, except for this. Um, I mean, right right now, when they run off a rebound, that's 19.1% of their initial attempts. That's wildly high. Like, they should not be doing that if their effective field goal percentage, like I'm reading right here from hoopmath.com, is 44.7. Their shots at the rim, 32.5% uh, of their shots when getting a rebounding and running. Um, they shoot at 32.5% of the time at the rim, and they're great, 67.6 field goal percentage. But when they shoot a three off of that same exact thing I'm talking about, off running off a rebound, which happens 50% of the time, 50% of their shots come off that, they're hitting 21.1% of the three-pointers. That's, that's a wasted possession. And at least early on, a lot of them came from O'Connell. I will say that because uh, O'Connell, he was three of three. He three for three against Central Arkansas in transition. Outside of that, he's 0 for, I think, 0 for 11 on, on the season. Wendell Carter, same thing. He's not shooting as many threes, but he's a, uh, an adventure in transition. Cassius Stanley started out six of seven. Um, in transition, and there were a couple leakouts off that, but I think he had a couple of uh, corner threes, which we like to imagine happened a lot more, but weren't a lot of the time. And since then, I mean, he started out six of seven. Right now, he's nine for twenty in transition. They're just not being efficient. But if you look at the other aspects of transition, off of uh, when they're running off an opponent's score, I mean, it's only five percent of the time, but they're a lot better. Off of the steal, not a lot of the time, but they're a lot better. Why are they a lot better? Because they, they get to the rim. And obviously, off a of steal, you're more likely to get to the rim. Yeah. And off an opponent's score, it's only 5% of the time. So it's hard to take a big it, – it's hard to say that's like a huge thing no matter what. But I don't know. I, I, just, I just think it's, right now, that's the biggest weakness and what's kind of going under the radar. But again, I will say that – with, it's still not a big sample size right now and the quality of opponents and different lineups and they're still figuring everything out, but they are wasting a lot of possessions running off of rebounds and chucking threes right now. So the question is, should they, I mean, as I said, the transition percentage of the time they run it, it's already going down. So, and I think that's why the offense as a whole is starting to improve stat wise, although they just played Wofford, big stat skewer game. Central Arkansas also skewed it. Because uh, overall transition on Synergy, when you when you remove Central Arkansas, which uh, 18 possessions, 29 points, shot 11 of 18, she had like huge numbers. When you remove that, they're in among 353 teams. They're ranked somewhere around like 320. They're awful. Like statistically, they're awful. So uh, the question is, do you keep kind of getting less and less and rely on half court and then... I don't know. That's dangerous. I do like the pressure their defense puts on opponents. But or do you keep as Joey Baker hopefully plays more? Do you think he could kind of change those stats around? Because like I said, I mean, O'Connell missed a bunch in transition. Uh, Stanley's missed a bunch in transition. Trey, well, he uh, at times can uh, stroke the three. I still wouldn't rely on it. Uh, could Baker change that stat around and should they just keep on doing what they're doing and hopefully 
with the sample size getting bigger, it'll kind of work around or I don't know. Uh, I'm, it's, it's more, I'm just, I, I'm just interested in your opinion. Cause I do think that's a very interesting aspect of the team. And I hate just looking at stats and judging solely by numbers. So I'm watching these games. and I do think Joey Baker can have a huge difference, but at the same time, you got to wonder why they keep, I mean, there's one stat that sticks out and they keep on doing it. Like, if it's not there, if they're not hitting the three, kind of back it out. Run some half court. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, I mean, one, you know, playing at a fast pace has worked fairly well for this Duke team, so they want to keep doing that. One thing I always struggle with just a little bit when we cut things into 10-second segments and call the first 10 transition, um, it could be, but part of it could be uh, what, so Trey is so good at getting the ball up quickly. Like, the ball is, it's almost like, you know, this is sort of like a North Carolina team. He plays like a North Carolina point guard, right? It's, uh, well, right, yes. So your classic North, your Kendall Marshalls, your your Ray Feltons, your 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 players like that who could um, get the ball up. So like Kendall Marshall was so good at that. Like the ball, as soon as they got the rebound, Kendall Marshall had it over the half court stripe um, with a really good headman pass. You know, um, three four seconds, right? Like it was it was nothing. You know, maybe even faster. He just he was so good at that. And Trey's really good at that. He gets the ball up. He finds uh, somebody ahead, or you know, he, he dribbles it up, or. Or whatever he's really good in transition so that fast pace has worked for them so where i struggle though is always in that first 10 seconds is it really a transition opportunity or are you just settling for the first shot i mean it's very quick but we do see duke a lot of times just settle for the first open shot instead of working for a good shot um so i don't know if some of it is that um could joy baker help sure absolutely he's a good three-point shooter you know matthew hurt is a good reliable three-point shooter um, I don't know. Alex O'Connell is a good three point shooter. I don't know. You know, sometimes these guys just go in funks, you know, like his freshman year, he shot what, 43% from three. Um, you know, you think about guys who just went through funks, you know, John Shire in uh, 2010, you know, didn't make a shot for like two, three straight games out of the ACC tournament into the NCAA. Yeah, it was, it was longer than that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it may have been, you know, it was a long, it was a long stretch, you know, it, but it was, it was games on end. It was the, and real quick when he did hit it, then, then, then Kyle Singler had like an 0 for 11 game against uh, Purdue. Yeah. Uh, and I think, yeah, it was shy. It was in that Purdue game where I think he broke the streak against, uh, you know, uh, Purdue who had, uh, who had lost, lost her point guard going into that game or something. Robbie um, Hummel. Was it Robbie Hummel again? Oh no, no, he was healthy. I think. Yeah, uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Not, yeah, but yeah, so but they always Robbie Hummel. He didn't like tear his ACL twice. Like he was always, you know, he he just had such bad. He was a great player, and he just you know couldn't stay healthy. Um, but um, but yeah, so you see that, or you know, Luke Kennard. Remember his freshman year? I think you and I talked about this way back at the time. We're like, man, his stroke looks pretty good. I don't understand why is this ball just not going in the rim and just. You know, and he missed, you know, 18 or 19 or whatever early in his career, only two for 20 to start, and then it started falling. So, um, but yeah, so could Joey Baker help? Sure. But I think a lot of it is probably, it's more to your earlier point, it's just about shot selection. It's about the cohesion of the offense. And, you know, um, it would be interesting to go back and look at those individually and see exactly what, you know, what, what happened, you know, is, is it just taking that first shot that you get? Is it actually being in, you know, what you would consider a classic transition, you know, in the secondary break or something, and you're just filling the, you know, filling the lane on the wing um, and, and see what it is. Um, but, uh, but it is something that, you know, they need to clean up because you have to value possessions as you move into March. Uh, you just, you don't get as many turnovers. That's what happened to last year's team in part was they were so good at generating turnovers and live ball steals early in the year. And that just patched a lot of the problems in the half court offense. But then you start getting into March and you just play teams that don't turn the ball over as much, you know, typically. Um, so, um, 
you know, they need to they need to learn to value value possessions now. So, you know, I hadn't really noticed that. So it's interesting to see. Um, it's also interesting to see when we talk about decision making that in that first uh, 10 seconds, 17.5 percent are mid range jumpers too. like it just seems like a really high percentage for, you know, that early in the shot clock. So, um, you know, a lot of it probably just speaks to the offensive uh, cohesion and the improvement that that needs to happen. And, uh, you know, from a pure percentage standpoint, can Joey Baker help? Yep. Um, but, uh, you know, it might just be more about the decision-making that's that's going into into why they're taking that shot. Yeah, I think a lot of that's Wendell Moore kind of. Could be. I mean, yeah. a lot of these guys, they come out of high school and just stuff you're used to being able to do. Like, you, you, you think you have the open shot, and the guy closes out twice as fast in college as he does, you know, in high school, and all of a sudden what looked like an open three is now, you know, off balance and, um, you know, that's that's a lot of what the freshman year is. Um, you know, if you're not a Zion Williamson or, or, or someone like that, R.J. Barrett, you're learning the speed of the game. You're learning, you know, what you can and can't do. So, um, so you know, hopefully that is uh, that is part of it because that is a that's a good chunk of offense. You know, I'm surprised that number is that high. That it's almost 20 percent. You know, 19 percent of of first shots um, coming within 10 seconds off a uh, off a rebound. Yeah, and for anyone who's like, oh, it's too much stat stuff, like, just think of it, it's literally wasting a possession 20% of the time. Like, 20% of the time. So, and uh, with Alex O'Connell, it's, it's interesting because, like, his first game ever against Elon, he uh, he hit two of two from three. Uh, and uh, I remember he came in, he had he had uh, some huge shots against North Carolina his first game. Yeah. Then, the, then there were some other games which he gave you hope in his freshman year. Not too much else. Last year... His first three games, he was uh, six for 12, 13, six for 15. Wait, hold on. Three, four, five, six. Yeah, six for 11 um, from three in his first three games. And then basically just kind of tailed off. And when it came down to it, you look back and like, oh, wait, he's just hitting all these shots against zone. Because if you look at his Syracuse games, that's when he kind of goes off. But the other games, he couldn't hit anything. Going back to his freshman year, I mean, it, like there was like Stetson. I think they played zone. He hit against there. So I'm thinking going into this year, yeah, he might be reliable for zone, but he needs to prove he can hit something else. It's not going to be another Cam Reddish thing where everyone's saying, oh, the shot looks good. It should go in. Eventually, it has to get to a point where it goes in or it doesn't go in. But this year, he's actually, he, I think he's like 0-5 against zone. He's really struggling from pretty much everywhere. So it's just tough, especially with the defense. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I don't really know what else to say. It's, I mean, he can help in terms of uh, creating for others. I mean, at the beginning of the year, I said there was two definitive players who, if they're both not on the floor at the same time, or at least one of them, then Duke might struggle on offense because Trey, he needs some help. But uh, Cassius Stanley and Alex O'Connell were the two guys – I think could consistently create for themselves and others. And I think that was the, their huge value. And O'Connell, it's just, he, it hasn't turned out like that. So I think, again, that's kind of why Baker might be even more of a necessity to space things out if they're not getting the natural kind of creating off the dribble that they were hoping would exist. Yeah, and uh, I was looking back at O'Connell's stats. So I actually shortchanged him his freshman year. He actually shot 48.9% from three his freshman year. It's only 45 attempts, but 
um, pretty good. But it is interesting as you start looking later, you know, by relative competition. So 2018, he was really good against all competition, against, you know, uh, Ken Palm Tier A. And I think, uh, so Tier A is top 50 in Ken Palm, and Tier B is top 100, um, I believe. Um, but either way, it gives you an idea of quality of competition. Uh, against Tier A, he was really good. But you look across his career this year against Tier A teams. Uh, we played, uh, Duke has played four games against Tier A teams. He is shooting 15.4% from three, which uh, not too good. Uh, last year he was, uh, you know, uh, last year he was okay against Tier A, 39.3. Um, before his career, you can see it dipping down 35.8, which, you know, isn't, it's not good, right? But, you know, so I don't know. I guess the takeaway is there is something to be said for when the level of competition. Now, I'm sure that happens to everyone, but you go from this stratospheric, you know, the guy's a career, um, you know, uh, he's almost hitting 40% for his career, and then you, you, you start pulling it down by competition, and it does. Okay, but I mean, here's the like, the, the, I don't know, it's just a really drastic difference last year against Zone and Fran. Yeah. I mean, he was 16 of 32 from deep yeah. against Zone, 50%. So uh, then, you, then uh, what was he against? Uh, man, let's see here. And this is synergy. Um, man, he was a nine for thirty, thirty percent. Yeah. Like, like he had some huge games against Syracuse. So, and uh, some other teams that played zone. But uh, that's why I was thinking, like maybe against zone teams. But he's just struggling against everything. And who knows? I mean, maybe it can be like I mentioned last pod, it's like a closer in baseball or uh, a field goal kicker seeing the shots go in against Virginia Tech and then against Wofford in um, garbage time. Maybe it'll help in some way. But And Kay is showing a lot of faith in him. I will yeah. say that. I was surprised he started against Wofford. That was, uh, you know, going in, I just assumed Wendell Moore was going to slide into that role um, you know, to provide some additional playmaking, but they put Jordan Goldwire in and then they started Alex O'Connell. So, yeah, I mean, it clearly says something when uh, when Mike Krzyzewski starts him and, uh, you know, hopefully there's something he's seeing in practice. And, you know, I think the offense can be there. Um, you know, he just, again, even his assist, his assist rate's 11.4, which is actually pretty good on this team. Um, you know, that is uh, behind Wendell Moore, uh, but the turnover rate is a much more reasonable uh, 13%. So, you know, he's he's more efficient with his assists. Um, but I always thought he was the guy that was like the hockey assist leader when he was in the game. Like he was always the guy that made the pass that set up the assist because he just moved the ball so quickly. And the Duke offense gets so stagnant. You know, when you were talking about the the uh, set play where uh, Delarier fed, um, you know, Stanley for the three or whoever was in the corner. Um, you know, I was thinking as a skip pass, you know, how often do we see a skip pass, you know, out of this offense, you know, again, old school basketball, um, still works ball moves faster than, uh, than, than, than it does when you bounce it. So, um, he's always been a guy who's been able to just very quickly move the ball and make a good decision, usually make a good decision with it. So, um, you know, hopefully that vote of confidence means something that there's, uh, there's more promise there than, you know, perhaps we're seeing on the court. Um, you know, and, and, and maybe it's a vote of confidence in his defense too, cause you are right. He gets caught flat footed and backdoored more than anybody else on the team. And Wait, I, I have a literally an entire folder of just clips from this year of him getting backdoored. He got backdoored twice by Cassius Stanley in the blue white scrimmage. Uh, well, <laughs> Um, you know, it's, uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's demoralizing when that happens, you know, and it just breaks this Duke offense because you can't have that one-on-one -on -one loss, you know, because then the rotations start and you just, you can't move over fast enough. Um, uh, and you get your big man in foul trouble, which is really going to be an issue because if Vernon Carey gets in foul trouble, you know, which 
you know, he's been pretty good about that this year. Um, I was worried going into the Kansas game that we'd really see a problem, uh, you know, because Kansas is such a big front line. Um, but he held his own uh, fairly well uh, there, uh, and he, he's been pretty good about not fouling. But that's one place where they really don't have depth. You know, you talk about this being a team that has depth. I mean, they have guys who can't play center, but there really is no replacement, um, you know, for Vernon Carey uh, on this roster. So, but that's what happens when you get backdoored. Who's going to step up? It's probably going to be the five. It's probably going to be Vernon Carey. He's probably going to have to make a play at the rim. And if he picks up a cheap foul because you were flat-footed and, you know, lost the basic concept of ball you man or, you know, lost lost your man, then, you know, that's a really big blow to the team above and beyond the point you might give up. Okay, real quick, I will say Jordan Goldwire, I think he was actually, he was more locked in. Again, quality competition matters, but I think he sometimes zones out um, when he plays off ball, when he's in there with Trey, and his man will just like kind of wander past him and he'll let up some really lazy plays, and he'll yeah. reach from off ball. He can get burned, but being the man who uh, kind of who was just always guarding the point against Wofford, he was really locked in. I like that. I mean, there against Northwest Missouri State. I know it wasn't an official game. I mean, Jordan Galway was damn near responsible for the entire Northwest Missouri State comeback, and it was just brutal to watch. And he would just. It wasn't him necessarily getting beat. It was him just losing guys. It was really weird. Not even like boxing out sometimes. So I like the fact that he was locked in, but I would still, I mean, Cassius Stanley, I think he he absolutely is a more consistent uh, defender than Jordan Goldwire. I just think uh, Goldwire can. He is kind of crafty at uh, kind of reaching in and getting those steals. So that's something to keep in mind. I, uh, Javin, he had, he had another good game. Javin is, is somebody who I was super high on. I still think he will be super valuable. I think you saw it against Michigan State where he just provided an entirely different element than Vernon Carey. Obviously, he's not a threat to replace Carey's minutes as a whole. But I just think what he provides is terrific in terms of when Duke wants to play a different way. Again, Duke is so versatile right now, but in terms of their individual talent, it's not as kind of wild as it's been recently. And I think I, for one, and everyone, should should be really careful about saying, like, this Duke team, because I think many are just saying, like, this Duke team isn't, isn't talented. Like, if you go to a fan of, like, a mid-major team and compare the talent, like, Duke is still wildly talented. They just don't, like, it's not, it's just compared to recent years. So I think too many times we act like this team is just, like, a bunch of, like, guys they picked up off the street, which is the most insane thing ever. Like, they're still hugely talented, it's just, it's not the same type of talent and it's not guys that are kind of just immediately alphas. We were so spoiled by whether it be Tatum or uh, or RJ Baird's obviously Zion, and like it, it, life isn't like that. So anyway, all right. So uh, moving on, to, to, let's just roll through a couple of opinions. Yeah. College basketball as a whole, ACC. What? Why do you think it's down? I mean, uh, it almost be impossible for you to imagine you wouldn't think so, but who knows. Um, and if so, why is it down? Do you think? Uh, I mean, this I year. think we see this every couple of years where there's a year where there's no clear cut top team, you know, it generally tends to correlate to the talent distribution. How good is the top of the freshman class coming in and where does it go to? Um, you know, so if you look at that, uh, this year, you know, you didn't have as many guys coming together on the Duke team at the very top and, 
you know, of course, you had Wiseman going to Memphis and, you know, it flattened out a little bit. Um, and yeah, I, I just I don't think it's that unusual. I feel like this happens every couple of years. Um, and it also helps that uh, when this happens, that the gap between um, the elite schools and the, you know, mid majors uh, just isn't as big as it used to be because you get guys who aren't that highly recruited coming out of high school, but you get four years for them to grow into men. You know, and they're out here playing with some 18 year olds. It uh, it just levels the playing field, you know, one and done, um, you know, as we know, it is, has been a has been a benefit to uh, mid-major uh, schools um, in the way that it's it's changed the talent distribution. So, you know, I don't think it's any of that out of the ordinary. Um, you know, we've had years like this and, uh, you know, it usually uh, makes for a fairly exciting uh, season. You're not just sitting around waiting for a showdown of Titans. So. Um, you know, hopefully we'll get some, some drama out of it, but I don't think it's any particularly, you know, uh, different than just the, the, the quality of the top of the talent coming in and the distribution of the talent, uh, that's around and, um, you know, and that's just, the game is so driven by those freshman stars. So, uh, just a little bit different this year, but I don't, I don't think it'll be that. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying, but I think the, the reason it stands out more is because the top, the the teams that are typically talked about the most, the Duke, Kansas, uh, Kentucky, teams like that, like North Carolina, I think they are not to the level of uh, where they are typically. And even the way they're playing is different. Like, none of those teams are, like, really running. And those are teams that, like, I mean, I'm not saying they all run the most, but, like, I mean, Carolina, you expect to run. Duke was expected to push pace. I mean, and they just don't have it's, – it's, they don't look – like you would usually expect out of them. So I think it's just more noticeable. In the impl- and then, I mean, yeah, Wiseman and uh, I mean, even someone like uh, uh, LaMelo, is that whatever <laughs> ball was supposed, was supposed to be technically um, in college now? I mean, yeah, it, it does have an effect. And then you have Cole Anthony, who uh, is out right now. I mean, it's worth wondering if he even is going to come back. Right now, I'm assuming yes, but who knows? So... Uh, yeah, it's brutal. I mean, okay, yeah, North Carolina. I mean, it's it is wild to watch them. I mean, talk about a team that isn't playing at all like you would expect out of a North Carolina team, just run and gun. I mean, they're still getting the offensive rebounds, but besides that, they do not look like. I mean, besides the the jerseys they're wearing, the uniforms, it's tough to see them as a uh, as North Carolina right now. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a different kind of team. You know, uh, North Carolina is a team that's always run by their point guards and, uh, you know, Cole Anthony, uh, is, as stats as he put up, he's been horribly inefficient in doing it. I mean, he's at a 92.9 offensive rating and he's having to carry a lot of weight and I get that, but like 92.9, that's, I think that's the same as Wendell Moore, right? So that's sort of the level of, you know, efficiency we're talking about. So, um, you know, and that and that's just what Carolina's built around. You know, you, you you have a guy like Kobe White last year who, you know, plays so well, and and that's what the system looks like. And and uh, it's just it's just the talent just is not there right now. It is not it is not a good team. When you look up and down uh, that lineup, there just aren't any guys who are efficient. You know, give them the ball and go get a bucket uh, kind of players. Yeah, I mean, Kobe White was playing not just with talent, but also experienced talent. Like a ton. Like Luke May was in his 25th year at uh, North Carolina, I believe. And, I mean, there was just a ton of guys that may not be stars, but they were NBA talent. And they had experience. And I think Kobe White, while a super talent, I, I think that's the context is necessary. And right now, 
it's tough to uh, figure out on Carolina who you could just put in the NBA right now. I mean, I think Baca, he's my X factor for the team, but still, I don't know, man. It's 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 tough. I mean, are we thinking eighty-two to fifty again? No, it's not the same type of Duke team. But anyway, well, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, we didn't know that Duke team. It's so mythologized now, but it wasn't like it wasn't inevitable that that team was gonna. Now that was a very down year for North Carolina too. They wound up going to the NIT that year, and uh, I believe made the championship game. In fact. Uh, of the NIT, so it was a very down year for Carolina. It was the Larry Drew experience. You know, John Henson was a freshman uh, playing out of position on that team. Um, so you know, it it could happen uh, in Cameron. I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's uh, it's impossible because there's just so far to go between now um, and that game. And I think uh, uh, let's see the second game. Yeah, so Duke plays uh, uh, at uh, or Duke Duke hosts uh, North Carolina in the second game that year. So it'll be. Saturday, March 7, as I look at my handy-dandy uh, calendar here. But, um, I mean, it could be. It's it just nothing's going right uh, for that team right now, and it's not abundantly clear um, what the way out is. I mean, yeah, you get Cole Anthony back, but you need him to play better. I mean, he just – he's putting numbers up, but the efficiency – we talk, started off talking about Ewing theory and things like that. Like, you, you got to be a more efficient player. Um, it is – I mean, 92.9 is a really – rough offensive rating to carry through a year i think you know i think cam reddish finished higher than that last year despite his struggles so um it's just it's really not good you know when you're going to be that you know high usage of a player um you know i'm looking at his uh page right now he's 32.9 percent of the shots you know which reflects reality when you watch them play you know he's the guy that's well they can't shoot yeah, well, uh, you know. Like nobody on that team can shoot. Yeah, which is a, a challenge from time to time. In North That's why they, they had a, they had a good performance. I can't, I can't remember his name. He was actually pretty good against UCLA. Maybe there's hope there. I mean, Garrison Brooks is like that ultimate, like, do-everything guy. But he's not someone you can count on on offense. And I do like Backot. He's kind of developing. Yeah. But, I mean, I mean, they need a guy who can just straight up hitch. I mean, if you can, like – Imagine, like, Cam Johnson on this team. It would be different. Obviously, it's impossible, but I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. You know, I mean. Yeah, if you if you yeah, flip like their schedule around, their ACC schedule, who they're playing at the end of the season, like those, like, 10 games and put it at the beginning, like, they might just be, their season might be over after 10 games of the conference. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially we'll see, you know, how Anthony comes back. And I imagine he will come back. You know, I, I don't think – I don't think it really behooves you to sit out in basketball. It's a, the risk of injury isn't as great as Well, real quick, then let, let me ask, because it's the last uh, kind of national slash ACC thing. Um, James Wiseman, he, I mean, obviously he quit after uh, – I mean, he was actually close to coming back after the suspension ended. Uh, Have you ever heard of uh, or seen or – has a player ever done this before because – I mean, say what you want about the chemistry once Kyrie Irving came back in 2011. I mean, he still could have, like, taken his time, let his toe heal. I mean, he came, he came back, and he, he really wanted to come back. I think people make too big a deal about Zion. He was only out for, like, four games or something. And from what I've heard, it really, I mean, it was so protective. Like, it really wasn't even an injury. It was just yeah. like they just wanted to be ultra careful. Like I think he was coming back no matter what. 
But uh, Wiseman, it's very different. I haven't heard this before of a guy just quitting. I mean, Ben Simmons, I mean, in, in a way, on the on the floor, you might have said uh, the way he was playing. Yeah. He might have just quit on LSU. But he still put up stats. Yeah. This is different. I, you know, it is. I mean, they're different programs, you know, Duke and Memphis. And there's something to be said for the institution that Mike Krzyzewski has built and being part of that institution and, you know, probably not wanting to show the man up and, um, you know, and I think Zion Williams is such a great competitor, such a great teammate. I mean, could you imagine? Like, it's the risk of injury is fairly low, and it just could you. Imagine? But I'm just saying anywhere, Go like any team. I haven't seen it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I can't think of it. But you know, it just he, I, I have a hard time. How do you even? You just you, all these guys that you played with, and you know, especially with Zion because it was in you know late January, early February, it was probably early February that Carolina game. Um, you play with these guys so much, it's hard to imagine you'd be like, no, I'm not going to do what I. You know, I'm, I'm not going to come back to, to help my teammates out. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't immediately remember anything else, um, you know, where this has happened before. I would imagine it has late in the year. Now, the other thing is, you know, traditionally you, you wait until after the season is over to you declare that you're going to the NBA. So um, it's a little bit different that, you know, and here we are in December and, you know, he has an injury. And he's already declaring for the NBA. So, um, but you know, it, I don't remember it anywhere else. Um, clearly, it's what he wants to do. Um, you know, he obviously has a close relationship with Penny Hardaway, so I'm sure they've talked about it, and I'm sure um, everyone is uh, – I imagine everyone's on board. It, you know, it seems from the relationship they have that he wouldn't – you know, he, he, he would run these things by – I don't know. It seems like they have a, a pretty good um, relationship, um, you know, uh, certainly enough to loan each other money. Um, so uh, – uh, you know, I, I haven't heard it before. I don't think it'll become a widespread um, thing in basketball. Again, I think it's just something to be said for being out there and competing and, and elevating your profile, um, particularly with the marketing machine that is March Madness. You know, the level of uh, awareness and branding that you get out of that, even if you're just thinking of it from a dollars and cents standpoint, is pretty significant. Um, so uh, I don't think we'll see it again. But, yeah, I don't immediately – I don't immediately remember another player doing that. I mean, I remember Butch McRae got a house. His mom got a, a house and a job. So yeah. now, now Butch McRae is coaching Memphis. So it kind of all comes around. Yeah, yeah. He should recruit Ricky Rowe now to fill in uh, fill in that spot. Uh, all it takes is a tractor. So. Bobby Hurley played for Indiana. What? Bobby Hurley played for Indiana, and his teammate was George Lynch. So, <laughs> just what wide, wide world is that? Where you know Duke and Carolina, George Lynch, by the way, one of the great Carolina players of all time. If you had to build a team, you had to take a Carolina player. If you're a Duke fan, I think George Lynch is pretty high on that list. Just upstanding person, hell of a work ethic. You know, took that '93, that wildly, you know, '93 North Carolina team, relatively under talented team, to be a national champion back then. Um, and, uh, you know, George Lynch was just a big part of willing that, but yeah, that was an interesting time. You know, it was, it was really cool to see, um, in that movie where you had, uh, you had all the, the college stars who had, uh, I guess it just graduated at that point that were playing for, uh, uh, Indiana in that movie. Yeah. When you think of all the talent Dean Smith had, and that's the team that won it. Uh, I mean, they got, they got my guy, Donald Williams. I like him. Yeah. All right. So home, home and home. There's uh, North Carolina, NC State, Wake Forest, Virginia Tech, and Miami. Uh, home only, Louisville, Pitt. Uh, I keep saying, people from Louisville must hate me. Louisville, Pitt, Florida State, Notre Dame. It's not Road just only. What's up? You said people in Louisville hate you. I said it's not just Louisville. Oh, uh, no, you're, you're correct about Singer. that. But I, 
Yeah. But uh, if I keep saying it like the name Louie, I am just, I don't know, uh, whatever. I, I see anyway. it on Twitter. I understand that. <laughs> um, uh, home only, uh, <laughs> no, I already said that. Okay, road only, Virginia, Syracuse, Georgia Tech, and Clemson. So uh, it's interesting. I mean, it's a shame there's really no home and home against uh, Louisville, Virginia, or Syracuse, considering Duke's non-conference uh, schedule. And um, like last year, you think about it, the two games that are being made up with ACC now, I mean, they happened against uh, St. John's and Texas Tech. So now it's not quite the same. But, hey, conference is conference. And, uh, hey, Virginia happens on leap year. So how about that? Yeah, I miss the old out-of-conference. I used to like those um, because it gave you a good check against someone else, especially against conferences that have a different style of play. Um, you know, a lot of times they'll have a different set of refs that you don't see. So it was just a little bit like the NCAA tournament, stepping out and doing something a little bit different. So it's it's unfortunate they don't have that. I always like that non-conference matchup more than the stuff in November. I felt like it, it sort of – was that last preparation or, you know, gave you a good read on, on your, on your team outside of the conference. So it's a shame that the uh, ACC has swollen uh, to the point that it has that, you know, no longer have that opportunity, but I mean, overall it's a fairly good schedule for Duke. You know, it seems to be breaking in its favor um, this year. Yeah. I mean, they have, let's see, they have two Saturday Mondays. They have a UNC Florida state. I have written February 8th. I'm honestly not sure which one's February 8th, but at UNC versus Florida State. So it's great to have that when you don't travel at all. Obviously, the road game at UNC, then you just go right back home and Florida State comes to you. Then March 2nd uh, at Virginia and then uh, versus NC State. So those are the only two Saturday Mondays. So, yeah, I mean, I guess overall it could be worse. So. Yeah, Duke's already had its tough uh, turnaround with the schedule with that Michigan State, you know, turnaround to go play at Virginia Tech. So I guess they've done their um, penance with the ACC scheduling, um, which was tough. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a it, it it breaks pretty well for them. So that February eighth game is uh, North Carolina, so that's a Saturday game, um, which is a little odd that the first North Carolina game is on a Saturday. I, it annoys me that they keep tinkering with tradition, you know. It used to, both, yeah, both of them are on Saturday. It's just weird. The first game is usually a week. To, so it used to be like right after the Super Bowl, it'd be, you know, that game would be, you know, I think it was always the Thursday after the Super Bowl. It was always during the week after the Super Bowl, and it was really sort of the start of the college basketball season, and now they're just screwing around with it. So I don't even know. I would imagine February 8th is probably the week after the Super Bowl. Um, but for all I know, it's two weeks after the Super Bowl. I haven't. As a uh, Carolina Panthers fan, the subject of the Super Bowl is not of much interest uh, to me this year, so um, <laughs> I don't have that date marked. But, uh, yeah, that is weird that they're playing North Carolina on a Saturday in the first game. But, um, you know, it'll be, be a big primetime game, I'm sure. Um, and uh, and then they conclude uh, with the other Saturday game, uh, which also that used to be a Sunday game back yeah, Duke has no Sunday games. Like, it's it's kind of I don't know. I kind of I kind of miss it. Yeah, um, it was nice every now and again. Some of the bigger ones would go on Sunday. Like the, again, that second Carolina game would frequently be uh, a Sunday game. And in the old days of the ACC um, uh, package, um, there used to be the ACC game of the week on Sunday night. Um, but uh, but that's some more. We have the ACC network now. So um, so yeah. So it's, it's interesting how that. Uh, schedule breaks out and uh, picking up a lot of the Monday games from the old Big East TV slot. So, 
Was I imagining um, that Duke played Florida State on Super Bowl Sunday, like right before the game, or did that actually happen? Sometimes they play the game before. I don't specifically remember. I remember. I specifically remember North Carolina playing uh, Florida State right before the Super Bowl because I remember covering that game one year, and I covered Wake Forest, uh, Maryland at Wake Forest one year on Super Bowl Sunday, actually for the Washington Post way back early in my career, because um, obviously they had most of their talent off covering the Super Bowl. Um, so uh, it it has happened um, that they would play a Sunday game before the before the Super Bowl. There usually was a an ACC game uh, on that day, but uh, but you know, so it may have happened, but uh, I don't have a specific memory of it. We we pr- we pretty much covered everything. Got a lot of discussion in um, on points that uh, yeah, I, I I think it's just we had we had an interesting back and forth about uh, i think transition we obviously figured out in terms of the specifics that could be something to watch out for in terms of uh, joey baker i think we both i'm a little more bullish on him than you but i think we both agree he could have a big impact so i I would say if uh what would you set the over under on for acc wins right now all right, so I got to recalibrate to the fact that this is a 20 game ACC uh, schedule. Uh, yeah, schedule is pretty much in Duke's favor this year. I don't know, 14 and a hook, something like that. Yeah, I'm tr- I can't even remember what I predicted in the conference season. I usually just go because I mean predictions with stuff like this are just kind of stuff you say, and it really doesn't matter because who knows. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, it's it's literally why I predict the Sweet Sixteen every year. It's just yeah. exactly in the middle. Yeah. Um. And, and you know, I don't think there's a game just looking down the schedule that you'd say they're predicted to lose, but you know they are going to lose some. You know, this is not a team that's going to go twenty and zero. Um, so where are the danger spots? You know, they got to, they have to travel to NC state and, you know, NC state, that's been a tough place for Duke to play over the years. Um, so they'll have that, um, you know, for whatever reason, playing at Lawrence Joel has been a bit of a challenge, uh, for Duke at Wake Forest, but it's hard to believe they'll actually lose that game. Um, Virginia is not playing very well. So, you know, they just lost today to South Carolina. Uh, they did. Uh, yeah. Hmm. So they've uh, they've uh, they've lost twice now. Yeah, it's it's not. <laughs> what was the score? That that intrigues me more than whether they win or lose. Hold on, uh, I'll tell you. <laughs> like, uh, the, the amount uh, of points they score. I, I, I'll say real quick uh, that the over under of Virginia North Carolina was one of the most insane things ever. Like both teams, I think it scored under fifty the game before, or at least under sixty. And the, the, the day of, I looked at it, it had the over-under at 143.5, and, a half, and yeah. it, it just, like, blew my mind. I'm like, are they yeah. messing with us? And, yeah, they totaled, like, 100. Yeah, I guess they were projecting a quadruple overtime or something. Yeah, um, yeah the score is 70-59. So Virginia gave up 70 points, which is... Uh, really? Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, that's not something you see every day. It was 63 possessions, so that tells you how bad... Um, Virginia's uh, defense was South Carolina unadjusted 1.1 points per possession. Um, Virginia was a 0.94. I'd have to imagine that they, there was some foul trouble because Virginia has no depth at all. So I would have to imagine somebody got in foul trouble and they just didn't have others. So I'm just looking at the box score. First thing that jumps out to me is South Carolina had 14 steals, which is an extraordinary 
uh, number against uh, against Virginia, even at 63 possessions. You know, 14 steals out of 63 possessions is is a hefty number. That's a 22.2 steal percentage, which is uh, which is uh, you know uh, stands out. Um, so uh, you know, Virginia shot 52 percent from two point they shot 33 from three points so uh it was really the turnovers that got them 19 turnovers um is really what tanked their efficiency you know just looking at the box score i was out doing family things all day but uh yeah Whoa. yeah yeah 30 30 turnover rate kihai clark seven assists seven turnovers that's not great yeah he's really struggled this year uh stepping into that role um you know it's it's interesting he's he's you know, the first part of uh, Tony Bennett's career, like, well, he can't keep going on. You know, Tony Buckets isn't going to be there or, you know, like it, it, just at some point this isn't going to work. Like you're not going to keep turning these guys in. And then the system just rolls again and again and again. And you turn out Malcolm Brogdon and you turn out all these players, um, you know, and, and you, you know, Kyle Guy was fairly heavily recruited, but obviously he lived up to it. And, um, you know, DeAndre Hunter and you just keep turning out these guys. And then you just assume at some point you're like, all right, well, I was wrong. This is just going to keep going. But maybe this is the year that, you know, the, the talent level isn't quite there to execute um, what he wants. Well, to do. I think it's more in the backcourt. Yeah. I mean, like he had Clark was not a recruited guy. I don't know. It was even like a top 300 recruit. Like he was not a heavily recruited um, player, but he was great in the NCAA tournament last year. You know, I mean, he obviously made that, that pass to uh, Diakite that, uh, you know, uh, got him out of the Elite Eight. Um, so, you know, uh, but uh, it's a different kind of thing when you're running it on your own, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the, the back, like, there, there's uh, the two teams, which I think is interesting, is uh, Michigan for a period of time and uh, Virginia. When you have um, guys that just, like, they seem like good college players. I mean, I loved Karis LeVert, and I loved uh, Duncan Robinson in college. I mean, they, they are <laughs> way above... What most pretty? I actually thought Karis Lever would be really good, but like, and then um, for Virginia, I mean, Brogdon's like really good, yeah. like really good. And even like before his time, um, what's his name? The, the three-point shooter for I think he plays for the Nets. Shoot, um, he's like leading the NBA. There he is. There, all right, Joe Harris. Harris. Yeah, Joey Buckets. Yeah. Oh, you said that. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Joe, uh, Joe Harris is killing it. Yeah. I don't. Uh, you can see my attention span in the NBA. When you play for the Nets, man, is uh, is is uh, Jason Kidd still there? I don't. You know, I like I just I have not, <laughs> I have not kept up with the. Uh, I almost called them the New Jersey Nets. That would be um, even worse. So yeah, I haven't I haven't really. Uh, I think I've seen more games, more hockey games in Barclays than I've seen NBA games. Hmm. And I probably see uh, yeah. ACC tournament games in Barclays than I've seen NBA games. Yeah, and initially I did have some NBA stuff, but you know what? We've been going. For a while, and I, I think it's uh, the best thing to do is wrap it up right now. But this was yeah. this was a lot of fun, and if I am lucky enough to get you next weekend, we will go over a lot of uh, I don't want to say all decade stuff. There is some all decade stuff, but just overall thoughts on the decade. A lot happened. There was a lot of kind of changing of how things were to just adapt to the changing times overall. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the one and dones, the social media, everything is worth pointing out, including Kay setting all kinds of records. So hopefully we will be able to do that. But I think it was a great conversation that we had uh, right now. There's so much, as I said before, the intrigue of this Duke team is what really 
I love it. I, I love not knowing. I love the chess match, and who knows how it's how it's going to go. And that's something which maybe I'm just odd like that. I, I think is really fun with this Duke team. So let's close it out now. Is there anything you want to add about uh, this current team and uh, how you feel, their chances, what X-Factors, anything you want to add before we close it out? I, mean, I think we pretty much covered it. It's, you know, it's, it's an interesting team to watch develop. You know, we came into this year with such a wide range of outcomes. I think, um, you know, we were all very excited about the team early on, and I kept having to check myself. I'm like, am I too excited about this team early on? Because going into that Kansas game, a legitimate range of outcome was getting wiped off the floor and losing that game by 20. I was completely prepared, you know, to see this team just physically overmatched and, um, you know, a, a very good Kansas team with a, you know, a, a very physical front court, you know, get carry into foul trouble. It was the one player I think we all felt good about. And, you know, and Kerry wasn't even that great in the first game. You know, he was a little... Well, he got into foul trouble first half. He was pretty much out, yeah. Yeah, and it, but he was a little bit tentative and, like, you just... You know, what was going to happen? And Matthew Hurt played so well um, in that game. Um, so, you know, coming out of that, and, you know, everybody in the uh, outside of the Duke community is like, oh, Kansas turned the ball over, you know, 28 times or whatever it was. That's not going to happen. And, you know, but I'm watching, I'm going, you know, well, I mean, Duke... The, Kansas didn't play great, but, you know, Duke played pretty well. I mean, defensively, you know, Trey Jones really uh, played a tremendous defensive game uh, there. Um, so Duke earned a lot of those turnovers, but, um, you know, you came out of that and you felt pretty good. And so so the range of outcomes for this team all of a sudden became, you know, I think a lot higher. Um, and really not a lot has changed. I mean, the Stephen F. Austin loss, obviously, you know, uh wasn't a, a great thing and it, it's a little unfortunate that you lose that history it was just sort of a unique interesting thing that the last time duke had lost at home was a game i was an undergrad for you know not even a, a junior um so it was kind of interesting in that respect that you hate to lose those those long stretches of history you know where it would be even if it started right now it's 2039 by the time you get out to you know or 20 i guess it's in you know 19 years so 2038 by the time you get out the same uh span so um, but you know, I, I think the the range of outcomes of this team is is broadened, but it is still really really wide. You know, this is a team that could you know go out and lose in the opening weekend, or they could win the national championship, and you wouldn't be that shocked. You know, with someone coming back, you know, oh, okay, I could see how that happened either way. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, what 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 goes on with this team, how they resolve the lineup. You know, if they actually continue to to mix and match all these pieces, or if they go down to a seven man lineup, and you know what's going to happen with Wendell Moore. So you know, it's just a reminder why sports is the greatest reality TV show going. So you know, it'll be uh, it'll be a pleasure to to watch. Uh, you know, starting with uh, Brown uh, after the holidays and and going through the ACC uh, ACC schedule. Yeah, I mean, I do think Kansas, they, they helped Duke out a lot. I mean, they they used the two-big lineup mostly versus Duke. Then they used it for, I think, three possessions the next game and haven't used it again since because it doesn't work, and they were missing Isaiah Moss. But give credit to Duke. I mean, they played the other team the way the other team wanted to play, and they stopped them from doing – from. Uh, being successful. I mean, that's all you can ask for in this first game. Yeah. No, it, it wasn't uh, Kentucky, and they didn't beat them by 100 million like the year before, but I don't think you can always expect that. Yeah, but that was a team coming in. You felt like the range of outcomes was extraordinarily high with Zion and RJ and, you know, Cam Reddish and all those guys. And this team, it was kind of like, you know, this could be, you know, a realistic range of outcome for this team was like uh, Shire's freshman year, you know, the youngest Duke team since World War II or whatever that was, you know, which was not a great year for Duke. Um, that 
that was a very realistic um, kind of outcome for this team. And then after the Kansas game, you said, you know, uh, the, the range of outcomes, um, you know, could uh, could be a little bit higher. Um, so. It's funny you mentioned that because actually the 2017 is I use that as a base base. I said this team was more talented. But I did use that team as a base comparison yeah. in the preseason for this team. That's completely fair. I mean, that's what this team could have been. That was the floor of this team. Now, I think we can all elevate the floor a little bit higher now, um, you know, and you don't have, uh, uh, you know, Carolina uh, like they were in 2007 to, to be a problem. That was um, seven, eight, nine. That was Hansborough's sophomore year. So that was the year I think they went to. Uh, that was the year they lost in the Elite Eight to Georgetown, where they had a long stretch where they just didn't score. I think is the year, if I'm if I'm right on that, they lost to George Mason the year before, and then lost to Georgetown in the Elite Eight that year. Um, but uh, so you don't have that top end kind of. I, I don't think it was a team that that was a that was a pretty good team. It was a young team for Carolina, but um, so I think the range of outcomes in the conference isn't going to be is you know you're not going to have to deal with that um, behemoth uh, down the road. So. Um, I think it just, you know, it elevated the it elevated the range of outcomes. So I think, um, you know, there's a certain level of uh, enthusiasm <laughs> as a result of that. So um, we'll see. So I think we moved from that being the floor to, you know, a little bit higher floor where they could lose in the first weekend. But I think, you know, at least you feel pretty good about this being a Sweet 16 team. Yeah, and honestly, I think fans of most teams can probably feel the exact same way because I think this this year is just – Hey, whoever's number one, like, immediately loses. So yeah. Who knows? Um, and my last point is just I just need to trash Mike Buckmeyer because I just remember the good old days in the Mar- in the 2018 with Marvin Bagley. If you look up per, uh, 100 possessions, the stats, Mike Buckmeyer pretty much led Duke in every category. And since then, he's just been a massive, massive disappointment to me. And I don't, I don't really know what to say. It's just, again, it's not angry. It's just disappointed. And I don't know. I mean, RIP my, my hopes and dreams for uh, Mike Buckmeyer going number one in, in the draft. Uh, if Todd Zafirowski couldn't do it, I don't know what stance uh, uh, Mike Buckmeyer stands. But when you have your one-on-one with Mike Krzyzewski, you can just mention it to him. Absolutely, because I am more knowledgeable than him, no matter what you or him or anyone else says. Yeah. All right, let's, let's wrap it up and uh, – yeah, th- thanks everyone for listening. Again, different type of pod, but I really enjoyed it. Hopefully everyone did as well. Ray, thank you so much for joining me, and uh, have a happy holiday. I will. I guess I will be talking to you again before the New Year's, so I, I will threaten you again with the full blame if Duke does lose on New Year's Eve, also your birthday. So be prepared for that. And, uh, yeah, everyone else, thanks so much for listening. Uh, subscribe, rate, review on Apple Podcasts or wherever. It is on every streaming service. And uh, for the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast, for Ray Holloman, I am Adam Comer. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks.